Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we will be talking about advertising, marketing by tzedakah organizations. In fact, manipulative advertising by tzedakah organizations. I'm fairly confident that everyone listening to this show right now has seen those advertisements or those marketing campaigns in magazines, or it could be in signs in shuls or pashkevillim throughout Eretz Yisrael. It could be emails received en masse. It could be on websites and the like with promises, guarantees or close to guarantees of wealth, health, naches, shiduchim, double your income and the like. However, there is a proviso. It is conditioned upon a certain donation being given to the tzedakah organization. And if you don't give that amount, $360, $720, $980, the shkalim, you will not be included as a recipient of the rishbrachas. And we will be discussing, are these problematic advertisements or are these needed Yeshua's for Klal Yisrael? We will be looking at it through the view, through the lens of halacha and also through the lens of U.S. marketing law, we will be discussing should a charity, a tzedakah, require a minimum payment in order to give a bracha, then we will look at specific advertisements and marketing campaigns being used today by tzedakah organizations, and we will analyze the actual language through the view of halacha and also the secular law. We have a very exciting group of guests today. We will be starting out with Rabbi Chaim Kohn, the founder of the Business Halacha Institute, also referred to as BHI. He is a major based in. He is a mumcha, one of the great mumchim in Choshen Mishpat in the world today. You will then be speaking with Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Ron, Rabbi Ron, a popular lecturer in Eretz Yisrael today. He is my go-to Rav, my go-to professor as well. When we have, I have esoteric questions, then we will move on to speak with Mrs. Linda Goldstein, a respected FTC attorney that's an advertiser attorney with the law firm of Baker and Hotstetler, and we will be looking at our issues through the vantage point of the secular law, the FTC, guidance and laws, and then we will speak with Mr. Moshe Kaller, the founder and CEO of the Markal Group, and he will talk to us about tzedakah that he's involved with, raising money right now for Pesach and thereafter, and we will see how they market their tzedakah, and it does contrast with what we will be discussing today, and then we will culminate the show with the prolific author and posic Rabbi Yair Hoffman, who had the opportunity before the unfortunate Petira of Rav Chaim Kanievsky Zatzal to ask a number of questions that relate in particular how to have bracha and atzlacha in Shiduchim when somebody needs a Yeshua. I just do want to say three important points before we get to our, to our Torah. Number one is, and this is critical, we are discussing the marketing claims and not the tzedakahs, not the charities themselves. We we will not even mention one organization by name. That's not our issue. The organization's not our issues. If they're good organizations, not good organizations, does the money get to the recipients? Not our issue today. We have a very limited discussion of the marketing claims by the advertisements of these charitable organizations. It's not only one. It's a handful. Most organizations are terrific and not involved in these types of advertisements. We are focusing on the advertisements, not the charities. That is point number one. Point number two, a very important point as well, is we, my hope, my sincere hope through doing this show and discussing this topic is to increase the giving of tzedakah. And we should be thinking about why we are giving tzedakah 
And we're not going to get into, as I mentioned, whom we are giving to Tzedakah but why we are giving, it's because we should want to help the individuals in need. It should not be because we're receiving something in response to our donation. It should not be that we are receiving brachas of health, wealth. That should not be our motivation. Motivation should be that we want to help those who are in need. And what's happening because of these advertisements that we are seeing nowadays by certain organizations, what's happened is that some people are turned off from giving tzedakah. Some people won't give to those campaigns. I understand that. Some people won't give to that entire charity that is bringing on that campaign, that is advertising that campaign. And some people won't give at all because they're so turned off by these advertising campaigns. And that is a terrible thing because there are so many good tzedakahs out there that are in need that are not involved in these advertising campaigns. And just because a charity does advertise like this, it doesn't mean it's a bad charity either. So my sincere hope is that those who have been negatively impacted by these campaigns, and I know of people who have been, they should give. They should give. Find the right places. I'll give you for an example the right places you're concerned. Is it a good place or not? good place. Go to the Shorov where you daven and give them a check. There are needy people in every shul. In every community, there are people with desperate needs that cannot afford food. I was talking to a Gabay Tzedakah, in a, a Gabay Tzedakah of, of a neighborhood, a very wealthy neighborhood, and he was telling me that within three square blocks, there are 52 families that cannot afford food on their table. This is a wealthy community. They cannot afford the food on their table. If you're concerned about giving the Tzedakah to a good organization that it will be used for a good purpose. Give the tzedakah to your shul rav. He knows what to do with it. So this is point number two is we should give not because we are being pressured, but we should give to those who are needy and people have been turned off by these ads. Please give. And also alternatively, I want to talk about those who give because they need the Yeshua's, but they're not able to afford to give. And if that's the case, and that is the case in many cases that these ads are indeed playing on for those who need Yeshua's. If you can't afford to give, don't give. There are alternative and even better ways to daven, to do chesed. Those are even better ways. When the Chazanish talks about somebody who needs a Yeshua, somebody who needs to increase his merits, he talks about increasing the quality of one's tefillah. When Rav Chaim Kanievsky was asked about how do you expedite the process for a shidduch, he's discussed in Simcha Laish, he says, Davin, work on your davening, that is the way to have a Yeshua. So that is point number two and point number three. When we see the advertisements, we should be educated consumers. If we see something... For example, an advertisement for a segula based on a rub from 200 years ago or based on this or based on that. Look into it. Look into it if there is a basis for it. Schoolers are fine. Schoolers are great. But let's see if it's a real schooler or if it's not a real schooler. Or maybe it's a partially real schooler, which means it's partially not a real schooler. And I'll just give an example. There's something that uh, was being advertised recently that you should give a uh, the gematria of, of a godel's name in order for a ilu nishmaso. And they said that the source was in the tzava of Rabbi Akiva Eger. So I looked up in the tzava of Rabbi Akiva Eger and it has the following language. This is written by Rabbi Akiva Eger, but 
Parashas Halavaya Yechalku Bein Evyonim Madeos Pagim at the time of the Levaya, at the time of the burial, when the Levaya is happening, when the funeral is happening, you should give tzedakah to the Evyonim, to the really needy, Matbeot Pagim, in particular these coins, he says Pagim, Kiminyan Shemi Akiva, just like the name, just like the Gematria of my name, Akiva. So the question is, is this a precedent for everyone? Anytime you want to give Lilo Nishmas, it should be given in the name of the Gematria. Is this only at the time of Leviah? Because Rabbi Akiva Eger said, at the time of Leviah. He also said, give the coins Pagim. Is it limited to that type of coin? Was there something special about that coin? That's something that has to be analyzed when we see an advertisement for a skula, to donate for a skula. You have to check, is there validity or is not there validity to it? So in fact, that's going to lead me to the first riddle. We'll have a few a little bit later, but the first riddle, sorry to the editor, we're not going to be able to insert the music right here. We'll get to that later. The question number one, riddle number one, is when Rabbi Akiva Eger says to donate, to give to the Evyoni Matbeot Pagim, what are Matbeot Pagim? Was that something special, specific, or can it be any coin? So that is question number one. What are Matbeot Pagim? Okay, now we're going to move on a quick to our Torah, and I think this will illustrate why it's important to talk about our very topic. It's on Parsha Sachremos, this show will be airing for a little while. Headlines is going to take off for... Pesach, so Rav David Lichtenstein is not going to be having a shear for the, during Pesach. It will be launched the next one after Pesach, when we are already up to Parshas Achreimos. We'll be starting it shortly, and it's going to go for a while. So in Parshas Achreimos, indeed, at the beginning of the Parsha, it says, Achreimos Shnei Aaron, after the death, the unfortunate, tragic deaths of Nadav and Aviu. And the Medrash brings that when Eov, when Eov heard of the death of Natav and Aviu, the deaths of Natav and Aviu, he said as follows, Af lezos libi. This too is causing trepidation in my heart. What is causing Eov trepidation? So let's take a step back. Chazal tell us that Eov was punished. He had tremendous Yisurim. Why? Because he was one of the advisors of Paro. When Paro in Mitzrayim was deciding, I'm going to throw the baby boys into the Yor, into the Nile, and he did not say anything. He was silent. He did not say a thing, and accordingly, because he was silent, he was punished with tremendous yisurim, tremendous pains, physical pain and punishment and illness because of that. So what's going on here? So let's talk about Nadav and Aviyu. Chazal tell us that there was a time that Moshe and Aaron were walking along, they were on the path, and Nadav and Aviyu were in back of them. And Klal Yisrael was in back of Nadav and Aviyu, and Navdav turns to Aviyu and he says as follows, Emasa when are those two elderly men, those two old men, when are they going to pass away? When are they going to die? And you and I, we're going to lead the generation. It's our turn. It's our turn. When are they going to die? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says as follows, We're going to see who is going to bury whom. In other words, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, You are going to be passing away first. And the Nachal Kedumim asks the powerful question based on this conversation. It was really a one-way conversation, Nadav said to Aviu, when, it's, when is it going to be our turn? When are Moshe and Aaron going to die? But it wasn't Aviu who said that. It was Nadav who said that. So why should Aviu also be punished? And the answer says the Nachal Kedumim is, we learn from this, that if you hear something wrong, or if you see something wrong, and you can do something about it, and you're silent, and you do nothing, that person who was silent, who did nothing, who could have spoken up, but did nothing, 
that person will be punished as well. And that's why when we have Nadav speaking, but Avihu being passive and listening, and he didn't say anything, he didn't say this is a wrong this is a wrong thing to do. It's a wrong thing to say. Indeed, he was punished as well. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean every time we see something wrong, we should be speaking up. This has, we need consultations, and we need to speak with Rabbanim and get Eitzes on this. But indeed, we see that this concept of not sitting passively, as so often we do, that indeed, oftentimes, or at least sometimes, is going to be problematic. And that's why I think it's important that we talk about our topic, the marketing claims by certain tzedakah organizations today. Hopefully, hopefully, we can ins- inspire a change in these advertising campaigns which are rampant right now. And now we are going to go on to the balance of our riddles. For our second riddle, the first riddle was uh, already said was the Matbeot Pagim of Rabbi Akiva Eger and his Savah. So number two is going to be based on Parshas Achremos and indeed it does relate to the topic of today, the advertising of today, because the advertising is selling Yeshua, selling redemption from problems, health, etc. And the question is as follows. Bizos. It's in Vayikra. Perek Tetzayim, Pasu Gimel. Bizos Yavo Aaron El HaKodesh. What is Bizos? Or specifically Zos. What is that referring to? And a hint on it, this is that we are looking for something that will be Mevatel, negative Xerus, Xerus, Ross, and Klaliso, or will bring a Yeshua to Klaliso. What is Zos? What does that tell us about what we should be doing in order to bring a Yeshua? That is riddle number two. Riddle number three coming up on Pesach, depending on when you listen to this. This may be during Pesach, before Pesach, after Pesach, as is known, the response to the Russia is Hake Eshinov. We have to blunt his teeth, dull his teeth. Some of Forshim explained that means knock his teeth out. And the question is, what happens to that Russia after we are Maka Eshinov, after we dull his teeth, after we knock those teeth out? What happens to that Russia? What does he become? That is riddle number three. Riddle number four is going to be a little bit unusual. I guess it's going to be more focused on the tax attorneys and the CPAs out there, but anyone is welcome to do a little bit research. These marketing campaigns, it relates to the topic, the marketing campaigns, and the question is, if you're getting something in return, you're giving it a donation, I'm going to give a donation of $360, and I'm going to get a special coin that had a bracha from a gadol, or I'm going to get a kameya, an amulet that was blessed by a gadol. I'm going to get something in return for my donation. So the tax law, at least in the United States, and I would think in all other places as well, when you give a donation to a bona fide charity, in the U.S. it would be a 501c3, in Israel, an Amutah that has the right number, I forget what the number is offhand, but uh, you have the the, the, the right uh, license to be an Amutah, that uh, you're a charitable organization that can give donations to individuals who donate to you, but you give something when you get the donation. So you cannot, the donor cannot deduct the entire donation. An example would be somebody gives $10,000 to a charity but receives a $2,000 vacation trip to wherever it is 
in, in return. You cannot deduct the $10,000. You can only deduct $8,000. You have to remove the amount you're receiving because of the donation. You can't deduct the entire thing. So the question is as follows. If you donate to one of these uh, advertisements and they say, we're going to give you in return. If you uh, if you donate to us, we'll talk, won't talk about you get a bracha, vatzlacha, nachas. That's not tangible. But what happens if you get something tangible back? If you get a kameya, if you get a coin that was has a bracha or something like that. Question is, can you deduct the entire donation, let's say the $360, or do you have to deduct what you receive from the charity? And if you do have to deduct... How do we value what you receive? How do we value that coin? How do we value that Kamea? So, for example, just to talk about this, when it comes to the Kamea, there is a campaign going on right now of a Kamea that uh, had a bracha uh, from Rav Chaim Kanievsky. That is the claim. And this relates to being an educated consumer. Somebody, if they want to donate to that, should do the research who the sofer was that wrote the kameyas. Did they really get brought him? Did he know what bracha was he giving for them, etc., etc.? I did do research into this. I called the organization that was marketing it, and I and they said he was a year, big Yirei Shemayim, the sofer. I said, what's his name? They didn't know his name. I said, who brought this to Rav Chaim Kanievsky? Which relatives? They told me. I called him. He was unfamiliar with that campaign. But that's okay. Do your research. That's the critical thing is do your research. I did some research on this campaign. Do your research. That's critical. And assuming you do donate, and this is our question. This is riddle number four, and you get it. You get that kameh, you get that coin. How much can you deduct on your tax return? That is also a dina de machusa dina question, so we can relate it to halacha as well. And riddle number five. Riddle number five is as follows. What is the basis? What is the reason for the minhag for eating matzah balls on Pesach? Seder or on Pesach in general, what is the basis for that minag? And just to hint on this, Rabbi Avigdor Miller's Atzal indeed spoke on this issue. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America our number is 732-806-8700. In England it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael it's 02-372-0304. And now, let's go to our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Chaim Cohen. Rabbi Cohen is the founder of the Business Halach Institute, also known as BHI. He is the Dean of Base Horah Eitzchaim and the Av Beistin of his affiliated Beistin. Plus, also, he's the author of Hilchas Mishpat, which is a comprehensive commentary on Choshen Mishpat. And I remember Rabbi Cohen 20 years ago, hearing you speak in Los Angeles. It was a packed crowd. That's a lot of years ago. So Rabbi Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi Wasserman. I remember vividly our meeting then way back. Yes, what a pleasure. It still is. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So Rabbi Cohen, we were talking about advertising, but not advertising in general. We'll also touch on that, but advertising by charitable organizations, tzedakah organizations, in their attempts to do a, a, a very important service of collecting tzedakah for Kalal Yisrael and the needy of their campaigns. And uh, there, there are certain things that I wanted to discuss that I see coming up, and I actually have received a number of emails from people as well of some concerns about the claims, the promises that are being made by certain of the organizations. We're not going to mention the organizations because the focus is not on the organizations, but the claims of the organizations. And I just wanted to start out by a, a more broad question of what are the halachic guidelines for 
honest advertising, and that could be for tzedakah organizations or non-tzedakah organizations. On a general note, what we are talking about, obviously, is there are two issues here, the issues of not violating the provision of Nivas Das, which according to many possibilities of the writer, and also sometimes Anosvorin. Anosvorin means if you have a person cause eventually Tsar, any kind of affliction, and anything that uh, he feels uncomfortable because of it, a person who was fooled in this other way. So those are the prohibitions. Anosvorin, Nivas Das. person has to be careful about it and uh, the Hoskin explicitly talk about uh, advertising, you know, in Hebrew you call it the summit. So, yes, a person should certainly, and it's the right thing, uh, to um, advertise and to let people know about whatever he has to sell, to offer. And yes, also charity organizations, uh, how are they going to collect money, uh, if not by telling people about what they are doing and what's being done with the money and so, and so forth. But it has to be done in an honest way, without which you cannot really assume that people understand that whatever you say is not accurate to the country. It has to be accurate, accurate to the extent that whatever the organization or the individual which tries to raise money uh, is saying what he feels is the truth and what the purpose of the money being to, to be eventually distributed. Now, when it comes to Geneva's Das, typically we think that that's misrepresentation, actively misre- misrepresenting facts. But Geneva Stas, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is also the failure to disclose certain facts that are important that people may want to know about. So it's not only actively giving misinformation, but also the failure to disclose information that should be disclosed. Could you be more specific? Um, if the tzedakah is uh, collecting, if I have a, an article and I'm selling a vacuum cleaner and I fail to disclose that it doesn't have a lot of uh, power. You can't collect a lot of, I am saying it's great, it looks nice, it's this, that, but I'm not disclosing certain facts that people would want to know about. So like for a tzedakah, um, if we're saying that we have a kameya, an amulet uh, that is somehow associated with one of the gedola Yisrael, but he didn't write it, he didn't know about it, that, that's uh, not disclosing information that people would want to know. And that's not even does. If you are selling a merchandise different what it's being advertised, it might be an issue of mekartos. It might be altogether that uh, the commitment to buy it has uh, is is blemished. It's, uh, certainly, if, if I if I buy if I buy something that uh, is different than what it was supposed to be, what they expected it to be, uh, simply because we didn't disclose uh, the nature. And, Whatever it is, so that uh, it's a much more than Nivas Das. Nivas Das means that at the end of the day, you were not really um, fooled completely in a sense. Uh, for example, if a person um, meets somebody else and uh, and uh, you think that he really would want would want to to meet him and to say this or that that makes him feel good and uh, and that's not intentional together, that might be an issue of Nivas Das. But this is not Nivas Das. If you sell merchandise that is uh, that is uh, blemished. And, and you don't tell it, so that uh, that uh, might be under condition be make a toll. So uh-huh. a camel, like you are saying, which uh, I assume to be written by this great person, and in fact it was not written, uh, and uh, the one who advertised it m- makes it seem to be that it was written by him, or like self-understood uh, that it was not written by him. So you cannot really assume that, right? So it's uh-huh. not. I think it's certainly not the right thing to do. Okay, so so tzedakahs, and, and typically advertisers are 
more effective when they apply a little bit pressure to the people who are listening to the advertisements. You know, for example, uh, there are only five of these available, or there are only 450 of these Kameas available. Uh, it's a, for a limited time offer. Um, they say, if you want to get a Yeshua, if you're looking for a Parnas, if you're looking for a Shidduch, this is your opportunity. So that is more effective in advertising. If the ends are to collect tzedakah, do those means, those um, marketing practices, would those justify the, the ends of collecting more tzedakah? Well, you put many situations in one basket, if I may say. Uh, it's, I saw that uh, when we spoke about it, so then you termed it uh, creative advertising, right? Creative advertising. Now, uh, generally speaking, uh, it's very interesting. You know, if you see a, an, an advertisement for any, on anything for sale, I think people are much more suspicious that whatever they read about the merchandise that's being advertised is really accurate because this is the nature of advertising that uh, you go overboard a little bit and uh, you're not too accurate about it. And so, okay, it might stimulate interest. And before you buy it, you make more research and find out about it, more accurate information. When you're talking about Tzedakah, I think, from, from my personal opinion, right, this kind, this kind of creative advertisement, uh, like what you mentioned earlier, only uh, so much uh, are available, more are not available, and so on and so forth, one might expect a, a higher standard from Tzedakah organizations as far as this is concerned, that uh, whatever, whatever standards are, um, are common in, in commerce cannot really be applied when you're talking about Tzedakah. People want to give Tzedakah for something that they feel comfortable with. And therefore, if there is an exaggeration uh, to, to a point where it's really not uh, reflecting altogether the truth, so that shouldn't be done. That's not the right thing to do. Do I say that eventually the stock that was given is not stock? I cannot go so far. I don't know. That would really uh, depend on the on the details, right? Uh, now, um, what, what also you mentioned, right? Stock uh, that were all kinds of elements that that should entice people to give uh, because of shiduchim, because of health reasons and so forth. Now, again, tzedakah should be given because there's a mitzvah to give tzedakah, and persons should help out a needing people, should have poor people, or any worthwhile endeavor, right, to tie it immediately into Amenas Shichibni, like Hazal said, yes, sir, Nedogodal, uh, no doubt. It's true that a person, if it uh, says, uh, well, no, my Shalom, somebody in family is not well, and therefore I want to give stalker. So, yes, it was stimulated to give stalker for this reason, but as Hadar say, he did not depend on that. No, in no way did he depend it. it uh, it's like a wake up call that he has in Hashemayim. Maybe you give stalker. Okay, so I give stalker. And where we hope that the school also will help, but I do not depend it on that. So, therefore, to altogether have um, issues of different kind inherently connected to the stock itself. I'm almost saying that if you give this, okay, you are assured. For a year from now, you're going to be blessed with this and that, uh, children, health, whatever that should be, right? You will be. It's almost certain it will be. I don't think this is the right way to go at all, because uh, first of all, it, 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 it's a mid-education on the nature of stocker, how stocker should be given. Stocker should be given for the sake of stocker. Yes, and again, there's no harm to say 
that look, uh, if a person is in a dire situation, so then it's the right thing also to turn to soccer. Yeah, daven and give soccer, certainly, right? And how Akadibohu will enter the tefillas, Akadibohu will respond to the soccer given, but not to tie it in here. And, and, and the way to, to write it in such a fashion, we're almost saying, you know, okay, uh, you invest a good investment, good return, good return assured. Uh, that, that's, that's not the way to do it. That, I don't think it's the right thing to do. It's, and I don't think it's halakhically incorrect to do that. But, you know, I, I see organizations who presumably are collecting money uh, on, a, on, a, on a formidable scale use those use those uh, methods and uh, presumably it's being uh, it's being blessed or, or at least or maybe not inc- maybe even encouraged right by Gdele soil okay so therefore I don't have anything to say about it you know who am I to give my my, my two cents to that but uh, if it's not being really really encouraged completely and if it's not really approved by very Gdele soil and by Peskin, uh, of notes, so then I don't know. I, it seems to me very odd that this should be the mahalach, it, and even on a simple educational level, to, to educate people, to educate people how to handle soccer. Now you said unless it's approved completely by uh, the gadol yisrael, one of the gadol yisrael, would that include maybe somebody in the chatzar of the gadol? Would that be uh, sufficient? Or if the name of the gadol is being used, it has to be the gadol himself to understand how his name is being used and how much money is being charged for, for the donation and the like? You know, we Jewish people are famous for um, uh, when asked a question to bounce back and say, so what would you say? What would you say? Would you rely on that? <laughs> but I'm, I'm asking, I, this, is the, this is why I get to ask the questions, I guess. I see. I see, I see. But what would I say? <laughs> it's pretty clear what I would say. Well, I, I probably will second the motion that uh, I think nobody in his right mind uh, would rely whatever, uh, whoever is a gabai or, or whoever to be even means it well. But nevertheless, you know, you would like to hear it from somebody who takes responsibility for this, you know. And in, in, in the secular world, you couldn't get away with using somebody's name without the full approval, consent, and signature of that individual. You can so, or cannot? You cannot. You cannot. Okay, fine. So then probably, I think we don't need to go to the secular world for this, you know. I mean, there's something uh, which halacha uh, to offer, no? Doesn't it? Absolutely. So, Rav Cohen, I'd love to read some of the claims that uh, somebody sent me. Somebody sent me a number of emails and wanted to get your take. Does this fall under Ganevastas or maybe Ona'a? And what's interesting to me is uh, oftentimes when they have these promises, guarantees, or quasi guarantees, it's linked to giving a certain minimum amount. Typically, you think that please send your tzedakah what you can afford, but uh, oftentimes it says if you pay X amount, the minimum amount, then you receive the bracha. So one of them had those who pay $480 to a given charity, I quote, will marry off their own children with ease, with health, nachas, and great simcha. I hope it's going to be fulfilled. But what are we going to do in the case it's not being fulfilled? So what's the boomerang? You know, first of all, you cannot say such a thing. You know, no, people did not really. Um, my, my rabbi's friend of all used to say, "En aftoch tzadikim." You know, there's no aftoch. You know, yes, uh, we certainly do believe that the bracha of uh, of a tzadik of a, of a of a person who learns Torah carries weight, great weight. No question about it. 
about Haftocha, you know, there's a different thing, there's a difficult thing, and certainly not an advertisement. You cannot advertise and give to anybody who gives a particular amount of money, assure him that this is going to happen. So probably what those who advertise rely on is because uh, they're not being taken serious. But I don't know, I'm not so sure about it, like I said earlier, you know. People do take people do take things serious when you come, at least a segment of the community, certainly, they will take you, have a tmimus, have a certain uh, simple belief, whatever you read, at least in this area, and accept it, and, and that's what we're not right. It's absolutely not right to do it. And do, do those who advertise it mean it well? I hope yes, but nevertheless, I don't think it's right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm particularly concerned that it's geared towards those who really need Yeshua's, those who need a Shidduch, those who need a Parnassah, and you're asking people who need Parnassah to pay money to get a bracha when they really don't have it. So, you know, the claims continue. There is no end to the merit. It will protect them and help them with whatever they need, is another one of the claims that I was sent. They should be saved from all hardship and disease. They and their family should have long lives and an abundance of Parnassa easily. Okay, you know, you could, yeah, you could make a whole collection of those kinds of promises, promises, kemat promises, almost promises, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you could make, that's a known, known, unfortunate phenomenon, right, that is, uh, that is coming around. And you, you point it out correctly, you know, that the main target audience, so to say, of uh, those kind of organizations are besides the poor people, those who need it most, those who should be really more on the receiving than, than on the giving it. And th- this is a part that I do feel is not really so so becoming here. It, 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 th- those kind of advertisements certainly are not are not helping those who bless them with wealth and, and the ability to give, to give more. Uh, to get to to those resources, you need different methods on a personal level and so forth to entice them and to be willing to give what they what they can and able to give. But who is giving in such situations? Uh, people who are, as I said, who mostly on the receiving end, and that's really misleading here. Right. You know, if for during Corona, there was one that came out that for a, a mere 3000 shekel, you know, but you can pay it over time. You can pay 100 shekel over 30 months. It was a school to not get sick with Corona. And, and I quote the language. Part of the language is Yizku mida kenegin mida shalo yechale corona v'lo yucholim bebeso. So not only you, but you won't be anyone sick if you give the 3000 shekel. Okay, look, uh, I think there's another element here, and this is that if, if Mr. Anonymous is raising money, you don't know really who is the one who raises the money, who is responsible, who is the garbage stocker here. So I presume that those who give this kind of um, offering uh, are not really people that uh, you would know who they are and what is being, therefore, what's being given for. So that's all story. But um, the main aim, I think, from this interview that you that you introduced me here and uh, that you wanted me so much to speak about. Uh, so I think the main the main what I would feel is the main point that should be brought out here is we should not fail in the education of people to give stocker to take away from them the the merit of giving stocker you know to 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 appreciate it not turn it into a vehicle of of, of uh, you know bid for that bid for quote. Based on that, Rav Cohen, what, what should we be looking for in a, in a good tzedakah? What, what's our target then? Because obviously, and I agree 100%, this is not meant to turn people off 
from giving tzedakah. Giving tzedakah is absolutely critical, but it's meant to make us more educated consumers. And when we give those tzedakah, and we should give the same amount, if not more after hearing this, but we want to give to appropriate places that will use the tzedakah 100% of it or close to 100% of it for the proper uses. So give us some direction as to what are the ideal places to give tzedakah to. It doesn't have to be specific charities, but but nitzrachim. Well, you know, well, the halacha the hilchot tzedakah who takes priority does not take priority. And I don't think this is the forum to discuss this in detail. Uh, what is considered an yircho and moses are limut and so on and so forth. To enter this discussion would need a, a different opportunity. Uh, but that's not the point here. Yes, if you have an organization, so what is needed here is always that those who give the approval to this uh, approbation, to this, uh, to, to, this, to this organization, that the Gabbet Stoker are uh, honest and, and uh, reliable and so on and so forth. And, uh, they are very, very appointed because of their integrity. So that's what it's really what it's all about. What it's all about. Now, the organization itself, uh, where does it distribute it, it, uh, their money? So sometimes they disclose everything. Sometimes they don't disclose everything, which is understandable. You know, they don't want to say whatever, whatever they're giving, right? And uh, different organizations are geared for different purposes, right? Sometimes for Anim, sometimes for whatever it should be. But the main thing is that it should be done by people, for people, for, I mean, by people uh, who have the integrity, are reliable, and uh, the monies are being distributed in a fashion, in a way, as Allah demanded it to be, you know, there's a reason why uh, you have to distribute monies, uh, not, not one person should be the, the, the distributor, it should be at least two people who distribute the money, and so on and so forth, you know, it's a, there, there's a mahalach, there's a, there's a certain system how it should happen. Uh, guidelines, I don't, I don't know how to give guidelines. I mean, the, what we need is simply, it should be done correctly, that's all, and the advertisement should not turn off people, that's what really disturbs me too, you know, because I also get a lot phone calls, uh, you know, but people coming to me often, very often, very often, it, it's very distasteful for people, and that's what people turn off, and that's not good, it's because if it's a good organization, you know, uh, you, you cannot really write your ticket to Adam Habit, you know, please, you know, you're a suit with Adam Habit. <laughs> this kind of stuff, it's, it's just not becoming. It's just, uh, it's, it's wrong. You shouldn't do that, right? Because we're such a, we are not, we are not uh, from other religions, dollars, right? But then, you know, you couldn't have solution for all your sins by giving a few, a few, a few pennies. Uh, we don't do that. We don't, not we don't do that. The Torah doesn't believe in that. The Kodesh Bochu gives life. The Kodesh Bochu gives everything that we need. We have a moon to Mimi in the Kodesh Bochu. And, and one of the main Myths that we have. It's a myth of stalker. You know, we should not be manipul- manipulated. Talk is a It's, it's uh, unbelievable because blessed us with the mitzvah, and we should not waste it. That's what it is. That's all I have to say. Right, absolutely. And 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 just to, to go back to a point mentioned before about the delivery of the tzedakah. If there's a campaign that's being raised, and online there are oftentimes these campaigns that say we're raising for a specific family, and uh, there's a need, a specific need, and we're raising a certain amount, $200,000, $50,000. Does the full amount have to go to the family or is the platform, the website or the organization that's promoting that campaign, are they allowed to take a certain percentage and does that have to be disclosed to the donor? 
owners. Well, there are, if I'm not mistaken, certain standards in the industry. It's an ill-to-total industry, right? Uh, and uh, it is an, it's, I know it's not a very becoming name, but it's, a, it's an industry. So, yes, uh, but I do believe that uh, it has to be in a range that people would feel comfortable still to give. You cannot expect those who are involved in rating those monies and, and do whatever um, to do it without any kind of salary, for example, if they don't have the opportunity to, to engage uh, what they need for their own living otherwise. So then they're not different than Magichin uh, Eishir, that we are obligated to support them. So yes, there is a certain amount of money that one could expect would be given uh, for those who, who are behind this whole drive. Okay, that's understandable, but it has to be a certain if it's in the range that is not exaggerated. You know, if somebody's taking half for me and half for the stocker, that's a little bit little bit exaggerated, you know. So what's the range? I don't know. But the, 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 Everybody knows, and it's understandable, so that some of it goes to me. But the other question, if there is, uh, they want to erase, they want to raise a certain amount. If this was exceeded, what should be done with the money? So Tzadikah didn't know there's a lot of that. Moisa anim anim, even if if something was raised for a particular poor person or purpose, so then you give it. Uh, even they reminded you give it whatever is left, also give it to him because we assume that when people gave the money, give it even under those conditions. On the other hand, if it's clear at the outset that uh, whatever they raised will exceed, so then that's a different story. So then, uh, being it's usually difficult to return the whatever exceeded, so then the garbage stocker could do with that whatever they feel uh, is appropriate to do with this money in a similar, in a similar purpose or something of this sort. Other tzedakah uses. Right, right. Rabbi Cohen, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure speaking with you all the time. And I think that really gives us some clear guidelines as to what is advisable, what's required, and uh, what should not be done. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carlton. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Ron. Rabbi Ron is a popular lecturer at a number of yeshivas and seminaries in Israel. He is the author of two Svarim on Tanakh, one called Sefer Katan Vegadol, and the other one, Haikar Chaser, as well as dozens of articles and numerous publications. He has a PhD in Jewish theology. Anything esoteric, Rabbi Ron is the address. Rabbi Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. So, Rabbi Rome, we're talking about uh, schoolas, tzedakah, advertising by tzedakah organizations, and I wanted to start out with a, a very um, basic question. What's the schoola of giving tzedakah? Is there a schoola? Is this a bracha? What's the difference between a bracha of the Torah and a schoola? So, I'll tell you, the way we normally talk about schoolas, the way people in the street, when they say there's a schoola, they're thinking about something that doesn't necessarily have like a clear cause and effect relationship. And it somehow like magically works in some supernatural manner. Like, for example, what the Chidah brings that if, if, if your wife is in the ninth month of pregnancy, you should get Psicha for the Aron. And, you know, in some fashion, that'll help with a good birth. You, you know, that, that's like, I think, how we think about school. But then there's other things that it's a mitzvah in the Torah and when you do a mitzvah, then, you know, you get sachar, and, 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 and it's a good thing. So I think staka, it's, even though I think people say staka is a school, it's not really a school. It's like, I don't know, like, would, would somebody say doing kibbutz Ava M is a school of Farichus Yamim, that, that you'll have a long, maybe they'll say that. 
But that's just like the reward in the Torah. It's, it's a mitzvah, and you, you do mitzvahs, and, and Hashem gives you sachar. So I think maybe it's better to think of tzedakah as, as like a mitzvah rather than a school. I don't know. School, I think, gives it a different meaning in, in terms of like how people normally use that word school. But if you're going to say then, then someone's going to say, so how does tzedakah work? You know, you give tzedakah, why do good things happen? Or, you know, when you give tzedakah. So the thing is like this. In Sefer Daniel, Parag Dalet, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it's a bad dream. And, and Daniel tells him then that if you give tzedakah, it will postpone the bad thing from happening in Paragdala. Now, on that, there are two nice Hasidish explanations where they now explain, so what, So how does the, the, the tzedakah work, you know? We say, tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah, ma'avirin, right? So you understand, tefillah, you're davening to Hashem for help. Of course, that makes sense that it works. Then tshuva, you're changing yourself. Of course, that works, but how does tzedakah work? So the first explanation, this is, is found in a very nice work called Ahavat Shalom by Rav Menachem Mendel Koppel of Kosov. This is uh, the Kosov Rav. And he writes like this. He died in 1825. And he says like this. When you give Tzaka, now how did you earn that money? You used all of your physical strength. To, to, to make that money. Let's say you're a plumber. So you were plumbing and doing, and it took an hour and all of this kind of stuff. So therefore, when you give staka, it's as if you're giving of yourself the time of your life that you spent, the energy, the sweat, the caloric output, all of that kind of stuff. And he writes, It's like you're giving of yourself. So therefore, it's very, very powerful right? If you give of yourself. And therefore, he has a nice word. He says, that's why we call money damim. He says, it's damim tarte mashma, because it's from your blood that the money was generated and you give that away. It's a korban of yourself. That's one explanation, which I think is a nice, the Kosovo There's another explanation found in Sefer Emunas Yisrael, and that's by Rav Yisrael ben Chaimeir Shpira. He died in 1942 from, from Godzinsk. And he says like this, it shows emuna. How does it show emuna? Because when you're working and you're making money, and what does everybody say? No, I worked and I did it. And now it's because of my strength that I have this money. When you give that money away, you are showing emuna in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You're saying, oh, I believe it really is ultimately from Hashem. So it'll somehow come back. He says when the demonstration of emuna there that's what causes, let's call it the good reward of Stockholm. So, so these are two, and I think these are very like understandable. I think they fit into very normative, you know, ways of thinking about mitzvahs and closeness to Hashem, right? You know, giving of yourself and showing emuna. you know, that's how Stockholm works, you know, so to speak. Oh, you know what? Can I say even one more thing, if that's okay? Yeah, sure. The Gemara and Shabbos has... The famous stories of uh, Ein Mazali Israel, that Jewish people are not, uh, that fate doesn't af- affect Jewish people, is Kufnun Vav Amudbet. And they have the famous story there of Rabbi Akiva's daughter. Yeah, that he was told by the astrologer, your daughter's going to die on her wedding day, right? And there was, and, and then she was getting ready. And then. Well, yeah, it's right? 
And there, the Gemara explains what was Sakata Sunimbabat. So she says, I'll tell you what happened. That everyone was preparing for the wedding day and preparing the food. And an Ani came to the door. Poor guy came. Nobody paid him any attention. But me, I am the Kala. I heard the door. I came and I took care of him. And is it, uh, that's Sakata Sunimbabat, yes? So what do you see from there? That Staka demonstrates caring when everybody else is busy and focused on something else. And she, she's the bride on her wedding day and she should be most focused on herself. It's all about her, yeah? Getting her hair done and all this kind of stuff. Everyone's circling, preparing. When she, though, was not self-focused, but thinking about this poor Ani knocking on the door on her special wedding day, that's the power of tzedakah because you're showing caring for another. That, okay, that's so, that seems what the Gemara is saying. Yeah. Let, let me ask on, on that point. Somebody mm. gives tzedakah. Yeah. What you're saying is it's a demonstration of a moon or caring for others. Yeah. Let's imagine you're walking down the road and you see this Pashka villain and it says, don't miss this opportunity. You have a once in a lifetime, once in 50 years, once in 26 years, 28 years opportunity to give tzedakah. This is your opportunity for Yeshua, and if you want a school for a shidduch, or if you want a school for wonderful children, or whatever that may be, it, it seems the bracha, caring for others, demonstrating emuna, is when you give it to tzedakah with, with that type of intent. But if you're giving it to this organization because they are promising you things, I know. that seems to be the opposite motivation of the daughter of Rabbi Akiva. Right. It, it, it's a bit of like a quid pro quo thing, right? Right? So, so, so yeah, it a little bit takes away the, the real power, I think, of giving staka because now it became self-centered. It actually turned into the opposite of the story of Rabbi Akiva's daughter over there. The funny thing is that that Gemara has another story there about Shmuel. And that's really the first story. Before the Rebbe of Tzedakah Tzimimavid, and Shmuel says that he was sitting around and there was another astrologer guy. And he says, oh, this guy's going to have to work in the field and he's not going to come back. He's going to be dead. Yeah. And then the guy came back and he was alive and they found there was a cut snake that was trying to kill him. Okay, fine. And then they said, what did that guy do? He says, every day when we go out in the field, all of the field guys, we all chip in some food and, and we all eat it together. But this one day, I noticed that this one guy, he didn't have anything to chip in. And I went over and I pretended like he was chipping in. And so what do you see from there again? He was like sensitive to another guy like, oh, no, he, he's not OK. Something's going on and I'll cover for him. So, again, it's a whole expression of showing sensitivity and awareness and caring and mindfulness that's the that's the And if it's like, no, but I want, you know, a new car, that's not so much, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you're still giving stock of it, but you're like taking all the juice out of it a little bit, a little right. bit like that. Yeah, right, that, that makes sense. And now, uh, giving to Tzedakah that you don't know how much of the donation is actually making it to the needy. And I'll give an example. Yeah. If you have an organization that has significant overhead of employees or yeah. if you have an organization that has significant marketing costs, um, advertising costs, by definition, if you have signs up all over the place on a regular basis, those are expensive. Those are expensive right. to, to right. 
to wow. design it to print and the cost to put them up is significant so yeah if you have a choice between giving to tzedakah a uh, that doesn't have that overhead and you know that 99 percent of the uh, uh of the donation is going to the needy and you have tzedakah b that has all these wild promises and maybe you'll get something back from it but there's significant overhead where are you going to get a better bang for your buck well, well, clearly the more your tzedakah dollars are actually being used for tzedakah then, then that is, you know, rather than buying paper clips in an office somewhere, then, then that's going to be very significant. I saw that Rav Aviner was asked about this, and Rav Aviner said that the, he, he goes by the litmus test of the law of the Israeli government. The Israeli government has a law that if you only up to 12% of a nonprofit can be used for overhead, if, so therefore, if less than 88% of the funds collected are being used the way they say they're supposed to be used, the Israeli government will not recognize you as a nonprofit. So therefore, he says, if there's too much overhead, more than 12%, he says, you should not give to them because that's by definition. He says, if that's what the government accepts, then how, you know, that, that's what we should accept too. That's what he says. Yeah. Interesting. Now we'll have on a rov uh, to talk about the chush and mispan aspect. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair. Uh, manipulative. I want you. I'm happy to hear everything that you have to say on it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Sure, no, sure. We'll have sure. a, a Geneva Stas hopeful expert. But but in, in any case, I wanted to ask about your thoughts. Some of these ads they say that you, you'll get the benefit if you give a minimum amount of X. For example, if you give nine hundred and forty dollars, then our gedolim twenty gedoli hador will. For you, so what, what I don't do even know. I don't even know what to say because you know, look, there is such a thing in the Gemara. The Gemara Baba Batra has this idea that that Rav Pinchas Ben Chama says that if you have a chola in your house, you know, and there's a there's a chacham in your ear, so ask the chacham to daven for you. Yeah, and even the Shulchan Aruch brings that in your day. The Rema brings it rather. He says yes, Omrim to do that. So there is a concept, and you do find in the Gemara. You know, when they wanted rain, they went to Chani Amagel. He, 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 can, he can do it. Somebody's sick. You go to Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. But I'll tell you what you never find. A cash payment. Like, you never have to pay for this. So I'm, see, this is the thing. Once, if someone's davening for you, that's beautiful. But if someone's davening for you and he's like, okay, I'll daven for you if you give me $100. I don't, once you bring money into the situation, it, it turns from a beautiful story into a business transaction. And you, you want these beautiful stories like in the Gemara. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, he goes up, he davens for you. That's amazing. But then what does he say? You know, oh, I'll tell you a horrible story. If you want to hear a horrible story, maybe you'll edit it. But I'll tell you one time, there was a guy that I knew, who, who, who he, and I said, how could you be a follower of this Rav X? Because he asks for a vast amount of, of money to daven for someone, you know? So the guy tries to explain, he says, no, no, no. The power of his davening is only increased, you know, when, when you give so much of yourself. And, you know, he's trying to explain. I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, to ask for thousands of dollars sounds, you know, anyway, about a year later, that rabbi got arrested on all kinds of, you know, corruption related things. I'm like, yeah, you know, once you bring money into it, you, you, you know, it, it, you bring some, it's not nice. And it's, that's not okay. Uh, it, it's, yeah. yeah. So, so when it comes to, you, you mentioned somebody davening on your behalf. So obviously we each have the power of tefillah. Sure. To daven 
for ourselves and it's yeah. also nice if somebody davens in on your behalf so mm-hmm. you know people oftentimes based on these ads they outsource the tefillah and yeah. I, I have one sitting right in front of me right and, and i'll just read it through it says don't miss it. it it happens once in every 50 years once in every 50 years is when you have this opportunity it's on the ninth year the ninth month the ninth day the ninth hour it's and they give specific minutes and yeah they, yeah it's like this minute you got a daven right now it's right. six 44 a.m. to 6.53 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And, you know, you compute it to Israel. And if you give us, it's nine minutes out of 26 million minutes. Right. This is the time you have. During these moments, 20 Gedole Hador and 40 messengers of this organization across the world will yeah. pray on behalf of contributors to our charity. And then it says, don't wait another 50 years for a Yeshua, as if you only have this one opportunity in 50 right. years. So, right. so, you know, we, we have an opportunity to daven for ourselves or to outsource it. Yeah. I didn't know there were twenty Gadoli Hador. That that seems like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and, and it's great that they all were able to take some time out of their busy schedules to hold everything, you know, for, during these special nine minutes. Those, those nine minutes, right? So, like, but I'll tell you, so you know what's really funny that the Gemara in Brachot Ched Amad Aleph, Rav Yechanan says in the name of Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. They they ask him, "What's an etrat song to Davin? What is the etrat song? What does he say?" The Shasha had Sibur mit So, so if you da, that's the Edrat song. If you daven when other people are davening, like if, if, if Mincha in your neighborhood is at two o'clock and you daven at the two o'clock Mincha, or that's what the Gemara there is talking that even if you're at home and you can't make it because you're sick, so you daven two o'clock at there, that's the Edrat song. So to tell me that there's an Edrat song that comes every 50 years, I'm going to say in Yerushalayim, in certain neighborhoods, you could have an Edrat song you know, 70 times a day, depending on your proximity to shuls in your neighborhood. So, but, but I'll tell you what it is. You know what it is? That people love to hear something specific. They love it. They love the, it, it, for human beings. If you, if somebody says, tell me, how am I supposed to lose weight? You say, listen, eat, eat normal foods and walk around a little bit, exercise. They're like, don't tell me that kind of stuff. But if you tell them, no, no, if you eat a grapefruit every day at 11 a.m. and another slice of grapefruit at 2 p.m., then they're like, oh, that, that works. Yeah. They need something specific and unusual. And then they're like, oh, because there's got to be magic. You know, there's got to be some special secret ingredient. But when the Gemara tells you, like, for example, they say in Brachot that Lolam, you should always be careful about davening mincha because prayers are answered at mincha. And then someone comes to you and says, I want Yeshua. And you're like, okay, so Davin Mincha, that's when Eliyahu Navi was answered. You see, that's when Ezra does his prayers. That's when Daniel does his prayers. They're like, ah, Mincha, I don't know. Every day there's Mincha. Like, that, that, that's not, it's not rocking my world, you know, not so excited. But then if somebody makes up something, you know, whoa, that's it, you know, Saturn and Venus and now nine minutes. That, that, but it's, yeah, but it's like a human psychology thing, you know, you know, the, 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 the Gemara is like not exciting enough. But the Gemara, when they tell you Edward songs, and this is Rajbi, you know, the Rajbi tells you that Edward song is what, when the Tzibur is davening. So, yeah. And, and by the way, I mean, that specific 9-9 business, I mean, it's found in this Kabbalistic work, Brit Menucha, but he, he doesn't really say it that way. If you actually look, he, he just talks about this idea that the, the ninth hour in general 
is is a time and he says that's when the Jewish people were answered at the Yamsuf. And he says Shat Shi'it is a time of Sasan and Bracha. That's what he says. So then somebody based on that manipulated that, you know, nine and another nine and another nine and another nine and another nine must be super great. But but there's I mean, there's literally no source for, for that particular claim at all. Like that just doesn't exist. Uh-huh. So so interesting. Based on the Gemara, I'm hearing two things. Man Mincha, yeah. is when Eliyahu Hanavi Davin, and also right. the minion is davening. And that's even in the absence of you're not being able to make the minion. You right, can't right, right. Minion. Yeah, but if you, you're at home, you got corona, so you 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 time it so like uh, it is the same time. So the, okay. these are like regular things. And if you want to be a little bit excited, then then maybe you, there's another etrat song. You know, the, the Zohar says that the sitra achra is broken at chatzot. So you want you want to stay in chatzot. That's fine. But all of these things, you know, what's amazing about all these things? If you look in the Gemara, it's all things that a person can do. It's all things that a regular guy has access to. There's, there's, you know, and they, they don't make it hard or impossible. Even this school, this is what I don't like about these schools when they say, ah, it's once, once every 50 years. What about the whole world who didn't know about this? What? So that means there's like a trick school out there and nobody knows about it. And we're all just walking around eating a sandwich at that time and missing this great opportunity. And, you know, because it's not revealed, like, these things aren't hidden. That's not the way the Torah works, that I'm hiding the good stuff for you and you have to find it in some ad in the back of a magazine, you know? Like the Torah is very upfront. Give stock, keep shut. Like they tell you, they tell you the information. So it's, it's like a whole different mindset. That's what I'm saying. The whole mindset is, oh, there's all these hidden things that only I know about and now I'm telling you. And if you give me enough money, like what? Like that, that's like just a different, I don't know. It's a little bit like on the scammy side. If you think of that kind of way of speaking, that, that, that's how we always run into, you know, internet scams and things of that nature. Yeah. Right. So now, can we possibly say mm-hmm. that the ends justify the means? Now, in, in other words, um, th- this is a bona fide charity. You know, it's yeah. going to the needy. And the way that they have found that it, it is effective in raising the funds is using puffery, using a little bit manipulation. But ultimately, they are enabling people to do a mitzvah by no- donating. And ultimately, a good amount of the funds are going to the needy. So could we say the ends justify the, me- the means or, or would, we, would we not say such a thing? Well, there is an idea called pious fraud, which is that you trick people to do something that's for the good of their soul. Now, that idea exists in Christianity, though not really in Judaism. So the Christians have a concept, and if you look in history, that they would always take pagan holidays and repurpose them as Christian holidays. And like to trick the pagans into like, hey, you know, you can do this, you know, this works for you. In Judaism, we don't have this kind of a concept of of, of tricking. So, I mean, we even have, look, you know, you know what the, the discussion, the Gemara Shabbos is, you know, if somebody put a pita in the oven, and now it's going to turn into Shabbos. Are you supposed to do the Midorabanan Avera of Redia Tapat to save that guy from a Daraisa Avera of Afiat if the stuff stays in there? And the Gemara there concludes that we don't do such a thing. You know, you don't, you don't do an Avera to save somebody else. And that's even in a Darabanan. You don't do a Darabanan to... to 
So and and also this whole thing is crazy. So what you're doing like an Avera, you're tricking someone for their to I don't know. And I'll tell you another thing. Even if it, you know, you're not allowed to do it on a let's call it, you know, theological level, like the Gemara says, once money enters the equation, then it's always like, wait a second. So is it are you really doing it for the benefit of this schmo that you want him to benefit by giving a hundred dollars to stock up? Or because some of that hundred dollars is going to go to pay your salary, you know, as the guy who works in this organization. So, so how pure are your motives actually when you're doing this? Like you called it a nice way, puffery, but but it's really you know trickery. So, so therefore, I'm going to say like this: A, Judaism doesn't have this idea that you trick people, you know, to do mitzvot. That's A, and then B, once money comes in then even your so-called good intentions are, we're going to say in a nice way, questionable. Yeah, we'll say that, yeah. Okay, very good. Well, uh, Rabbi Rohn, I want to thank you for joining us. It's uh, been very interesting. I think I think your view of these uh, these uh, manipulative uh, yeah. ads by the church, by the charities, it's it's fairly clear. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, when I read those ads, I just feel like, do they really think people are falling for it? But but presumably, people do fall for it because they run these kinds of ads. But I feel it really demeans Judaism. You know, Judaism is 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 the real thing. And when you have these ads, it's like, oh my gosh, you're turning it into like one of those Nigerian prince scams. And that's not that's not what Yahadus is supposed to be. That's not a connection to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that, that's not what our life is supposed to be. Kind of, kind of like selling the uh, red thread bracelet at the co-sell, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the Tosefta explicitly says is Darkei MRE. So, I mean, yeah, I know, right? You're reducing stuff into, into this, into like magic tricks, right? Well, you're going to pull a rabbit out of a hat? That, that's Yadus? That's not Yadus? That's what the Paro Khartoumim do. And then our, our Mate eats them up and chews them up to show that this is garbage. Yeah. Well, Rabbi Rowan, want to thank you so much. We look it's forward to it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Joining us now is Mrs. Linda Goldstein. Mrs. Goldstein is, is one of the leading advertising lawyers in the country. She is, she is the co-leader of Baker Hostet Advertising, Marketing, and Digital Media Team. And she regularly provides advertising counsel and regulatory advice to leading Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies. Today, we're going to go a little bit smaller. We're going to talk about nonprofits and marketing, marketing uh, materials. Mrs. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. It is a pleasure. So, Mrs. Goldstein, I I know you do a lot of advertising law. I, I think you even just reviewed about 150 advertising materials for marketing companies, nonprofits uh, included. So I'd love to hear about that. If we could just divide up the conversation first, the, the, the lay of the land on some of the more legal discussion, more more broader discussion on the legalities of advertising law. And then if we can get into the particulars of certain advertising claims that, that I've, I've seen recently. Sure. So one of the most important things to keep in mind is that while in some cases, nonprofits get special treatment, under advertising law, they don't. So nonprofits are really subject to all of the same rules and restrictions regarding truth in advertising, meaning that the solicitations for donations 
have to be truthful. You can't make any misleading claims or statements, um, particularly about the work that you're doing or consequences uh, to a, a consumer if they if they do or do not donate, and also the methods by which the donations are solicited. It has to be very, very clear to the consumer exactly what they're doing, exactly what they're giving, exactly how they're going to be charged. Those are the same laws that apply to any commercial transaction, and they apply equally in the nonprofit space. So, so- which governmental agencies are we talking about that regulate this area? So there are actually several. I would say at the top of the chart would be the Federal Trade Commission. The Federal Trade Commission is the primary agency in the United States with jurisdiction over advertising and and truthful advertising. And they have jurisdiction over nonprofits. And in fact, they have been somewhat aggressive recently um, in going after some nonprofits. We can talk about that a little bit later in the show. But in addition to the Federal Trade Commission, there are also uh, state attorneys general who are very active in this area. And all of the states have their own versions of the same laws that the FTC has, which prohibit unfair, misleading, deceptive practices. And within the attorney general's offices, there are also divisions that are dedicated to charitable solicitations. They're called the charities bureaus. And those charity bureaus have also been very aggressive in the United States in going after charities that they believe are soliciting donations through false or misleading means. Mrs. Goldstein, what you're, what you're saying is that there are a lot of agencies, be it federal or state attorney generals of the states, there are 50 of those, the charities bureaus. So it, it seems like it's a, a fairly risky field because any one of them can uh, send you a letter, open up an investigation. That. That's exactly right. It, it is really considered um, one of the high risk areas for advertising in this country because there are so many agencies um, that that look at look at these uh, practices. And while the Federal Trade Commission is always considered the 800 pound gorilla because the charities are so strictly regulated in the U.S. by the charities laws and the oversight of the attorneys general, as you said, it's like having 51 policemen really looking at your materials at any time. Interesting. So I do want to get to the the claims and the requirement for honest advertising. But before that, I'd love to go through some of the procedures. If the FTC or an attorney general gets wind of something that they're suspicious about, what's their process? Do they start with uh, a warning letter or an inquiry letter asking substantiation? What's the process that they go through? So in the old days, you you might be lucky enough to just get uh, an inquiry letter. Those days are, 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 are pretty much gone. And for the most part today, they the first time you will hear from them is when they've actually opened an active investigation. And the procedures are fairly similar, both at the Federal Trade Commission and with the state attorneys general. So typically what will happen is you'll get uh, the equivalent of a subpoena. It has different names depending on whether it's federal or state, but it's essentially a subpoena that 
asks you for a lot of information and documents. And at that point, you are part of an open investigation. And the way the process works is typically you'll respond and you'll provide the information or the documentation that's requested. I should mention, and I think this is an important thing for um, your audience to know, that many times as part of the investigation, the government will also go to your third-party vendors to get information. And that can be extremely disruptive to relationships that you might have with list brokers or with merchant processors. So it's not something you can necessarily keep quiet. And apart from the disruption to your business and the possible financial consequences, which I'm sure we'll talk about, just the the, the fact of being part of this investigation, uh, regardless of where it goes, can can impact some of your business relationships as well and relationships with others that may be providing essential services to you because they will often get scared when a regulator comes knocking on their door and says, hey, I want to know what you're doing for XYZ charity and I want to see all of your records. So, so I guess they do that even if, even if the marketer or the nonprofit is going to try to hide things third parties are not going to be very inclined to be hiding things because they're going to be worried about their liability even more so. Correct. And they're also going to be told not to tell the target of the investigation that they've been contacted. So you may not even be aware of the fact that the government is snooping around. Uh, so, So before we get into the claims themselves and the required honesty, substantiation of the claims, if the FTC, let's say, finds that there was false advertising. By law, who's liable? And are we talking penalties? Are we talking civil penalties, criminal punishment? What, what exactly could happen then? So there, there, there are really, in terms of the remedies, there are two remedies. There is the financial remedies and the injunctive remedies. The injunction meaning restrictions on your conduct in the future. So let me talk about that first. Um, so typically, and, and and this is the same for the Federal Trade Commission and the states, they both have the authority to obtain these injunctions, which will restrict what you can and cannot do in the future. And the, the scope of those remedies can be quite broad. In some cases, uh, particularly at the if it's at the Federal Trade Commission, the commission may actually ban a company uh, or an entity from engaging in that business in the future. In other words, they may say, what you did was so bad, you can no longer do fundraising. Um, from an attorney general standpoint, they can do the same thing. They can also revoke whatever licenses you've obtained from the charity bureaus. So that's another way of effectively shutting you down. Um, then they can also very you know, much restrict what you can say in the future. Um, they may prohibit you from using certain tactics or making certain representations. Um, and then on the money side, they can typically, um, de- depending on uh, the nature of the violation, it, it could be subject to civil penalties. The states always have the authority to obtain civil penalties. 
It's a little more complicated with the Federal Trade Commission now because of some Supreme Court decisions that have recently come out. But for the most part, the FTC can get money and they can get a lot of money. Um, recent settlements at the FTC have ranged in the you know multi-million dollars and seven figures is often the starting bid for any kind of a reasonable settlement negotiation. Now, are we talking about on the entity, the nonprofit, or the individuals as well? And, and that's both on the uh, injunctive relief, future relief, and also on the uh, financial penalties. So one of the most significant regulatory trends in the United States, uh, particularly at the Federal Trade Commission level, is that they are going after individuals. And particularly um, if it's a small charity where the individual or a group of individuals are the ones that are primarily directing and controlling the activities of the charity, they're going to go after the individuals. In fact, they're, they're, they will be more interested in the individuals than the entity. And what that means is that whatever the consequences are, and particularly on the injunctive side, um, the individuals will not be able to just shut down one charity and open up another. It will that whatever the the order is will follow those individuals for the rest of their lives. Right, because they know that uh, you you have one uh, shell and you open up the next one and the next Correct. one. So that's uh, that's useless. So and, what, and and I also will mention that they can and they will go after financial assets. As well, personal assets, even personal assets of family members, if they're being held jointly. So it's it's very serious business here and very serious consequences. Now, what happens if that charity is is overseas, but is advertising in the United States? It limits its contact to the United States, but it does have advertising and it does have uh, donors send checks. If it's checks that they're taking to a, a physical address in New Jersey and Texas, wherever it may be. So they try to limit the, the context. Is it sufficient for the FTC to come in and start an investigation because you have those advertising marketing contacts and, and a, a PO box or a physical address there for, for checks to be sent to? A hundred percent. I mean, the, and in fact, I would go further to say you don't even need those contacts. If you're soliciting from overseas into the United States, the, there is a, a statute called the Safe Web Act that gives the FTC the authority to pursue uh, entities and individuals overseas. Uh, the FTC has and will work with local authorities in the in the overseas countries um, to go after individuals who may be soliciting consumers in the United States, and certainly. The first thing the FTC or a state would likely do in that situation is to um, go after the entities that are providing the services in the United States. And we've seen cases where they've, you know, shut down and seized mailboxes. I should, I neglected to mention, Ari, that if, 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 um, if you're soliciting by mail, there is also the U.S. Postal Service, and the U.S. Postal Service has also been very active in going after nonprofits who solicit through fraudulent means by mail. And they have 
very, very strong powers. And we have had situations where Postal has made criminal referrals. They have both civil and criminal authority. So we're up to 52 FTCs at this 52, point. 52, yes. So far, so far. Now, now the, the liability, we're talking about the liability of the entity, the nonprofit, also the sponsors, the employees, uh, senior executives at that uh, nonprofit. How about if they hire a telemarketer to be calling and raising funds or if they place ads in a magazine or if they are advertising on a website do those third parties who are facilitating that advertising and marketing effort do they have potential liability as well yes so there is in in under u.s law there is a a concept called assisting and facilitating and entities that assist and facilitate marketers uh engaging in fraudulent or deceptive conduct can be held liable or entities that provide the means and the instrumentalities can also be held liable. So uh, the FTC in particular, I would say more than the states, uh, the FTC and the Postal Service have gone after list brokers, telemarketers. Um, They're less inclined to go after the media unless the, the, the solicitations or the conduct is so egregious that on its face they feel that the media should have known that there was a problem. But because of the First Amendment protections here in the U.S., there is a hesitancy to go after the media or the publishers, but going after the telemarketers or you know, creative agencies that may be hired um, or merchant processors or caging houses. Um, those are all fair game and they've all been uh, targets of enforcement action when they've been providing those services to fraudulent marketers. Right. Okay. So now we have the lay of the land, which are the uh, regulatory uh governmental agencies that uh, are, are watching what the risks are, what the liability is, and who's potentially liable. So let, let love my, for, you're back. Love my internet. Okay, so let's do that again. <laughs> it happens to me, so. No, oh, it's me. It's me. I what? can't. I, I came into the office for this just to make sure the oh, connection. Well, thank you, thank you. So, 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 Mrs. Goldstein, where we are right now is that we've talked about who's going to investigate. We're talking about the FTC, the state, state attorneys generals, the charities bureaus, etc. We know about liability. It can be the entity. If it's a shell, they'll go through the individuals, even the spouses of the individuals. We know who's can who can be liable and the and the potential penalty. So let's talk about the rat veracity of claims. Now, I, somebody sent me just a, a splattering of uh, emails that, uh, that she received, and it wasn't cherry-picked. So I just opened up a few of them, and I, I want to run some of the claims by you. I'm sure there are much more egregious ones, but just so we can have an example of claims that would be acceptable, not acceptable. And if you can also try to grade it for us, like this is not bad, terrible, egregious, that, that would be helpful. So when we are looking at ads, we can understand if this is coming from a good place, a legal place, 
or a place that is is not uh, legally acceptable. So I, I did see one one uh, ad that said that anyone who donates four hundred and eighty dollars, I don't know why why four hundred eighty dollars specifically to a given charity. I do have a, an idea why. I, I once saw a study that if somebody goes up and asks another for a specific amount of money, they'll be more successful in getting it. So if somebody in the subway comes up to you and says, can you help me? I need a dollar twenty-three, as opposed to can I have a handout? Uh, they'll be able to get a much, much better uh, return on, on their efforts. So I assume that that's why $480 as opposed to $500. So if they said $480 to this given charity, we're not going to name the charities, and I'm quoting now, will marry off their children. This is the donor. If you give us this money, $480, will marry off their children with ease, with health, nachas, and great simcha. How, 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 where would you grade that one? So I would, I would grade that as not the worst I've seen, but in general, that kind of a claim falls into a category of, you know, promises about what will happen to someone in the future or what their, you know, promises of good fortune, which are generally considered to be promises that you can't really substantiate. Um, now, I will say with something like that, you know, there, there is this tension between a person's belief systems. Um, you know, as, 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 as a Jew, I know that, I mean, there, there is a strong belief system that if you, if you give charity, if you give tzedakah, good things will happen. But a, a, a specific promise like that to, in, to an individual would likely be viewed by the government as misleading because no one can promise. You could make more general statements about, you know, the benefits of, of, of making a donation, but to make that kind of a specific promise would be considered something you likely couldn't substantiate. Uh -huh. um, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in the United States, um, there was uh, there was a lot of enforcement action brought against many of the astrology companies who were also saying, you know, buy this uh, buy this object or rub this coin, and you know you will you will see you you will be very rich in the next twelve months or things like that, and. And, and, and those kinds of claims have, have universally been held to be misleading and deceptive. And, and also, um, the government considers those claims to be the kinds of claims that are really appealing to vulnerable consumers, um, and, and therefore they're always viewed with heightened scrutiny as well. So, so let me give you another one. It sounds like it's more in that direction. By giving charity to this certain organization, quote, it should protect them. That's the donors from all hardships. Their income should be doubled and they should have nachas from all of their descendants. So that that would be, um, I, I would rate, rank that as an even higher risk. Uh, the first one's a high risk. This is an even higher risk because you've now quantified the result to say your income is going to double. You're making a very specific promise and you have no basis for making the claim. I mean, 
if, if we wanted to look at it technically, what you would have to do to substantiate that claim as a charity is to show that all, all the people or most of the people that donated to the charity doubled their income. And I highly doubt that any charity would be able to support that kind of a claim. Send everyone's tax returns in to show it doubled between b- before the donation and after the donation. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's that's a quantifiable guarantee, basically, what they're saying. Let, let me yes. give you that. That's may, maybe not as bad. It's, quote, they should be saved from all hardship and disease. They and all their families should have long lives and an and, and abundance of Parnassa easily. So here they're saying an abundance of Parnassa as opposed to doubling the income. Is, is that a safer way to do it or is that treading... I, I think I think we're splitting hairs. I mean, you're basically making promises that you know you can't support. Um, unfortunately, bad things happen to good people, and no organization can really promise you that a donation is is gonna make you know make you rich cause your income to increase, make sure nothing bad happens to you, that you're not going to get sick or uh, something happens to anyone in your family. I mean, the, the claims, you know, the claims are so broad, they're impossible to substantiate. Right, right. So, so how, how about a subject line? And, and, and then I'll go into other questions. A subject line of the big secret to marrying off your kids without loans. That's also a financial guarantee, but it's saying it's a big secret to marrying, and then it's a it's a solicitation on the inside. So, I mean, I'd have to I'd have to see the context of what's in there. It sounds to me like again that that looks like a promise that you're going to be able to you know to incur significant, you know, financial obligations without incurring any loans. And I want to mention on that one, you said it's a subject line. So I assume that's in an email. Yes. Yes. So when I said earlier, in some cases, in addition to having to return all the money consumers paid you, you might also be subject to civil penalties. In the United States, under there is a law called the Can-Spam Law, which regulates um, emails, and that would be considered a misleading subject line. Uh, and that is subject. And by the way, the Fer- the Federal Trade Commission is looking for cases that they can bring under laws like Can-Spam, where they can get civil penalties because the penalty is. $47,000 per violation, and each email sent would be a separate violation regardless of whether the person responds or not. Merely sending it out is a violation, so you can imagine how those dollars would add up in terms of civil penalties. Very quickly, very quickly. Now, we're all talking now about when there are tangible guarantees by the, the market or by the charity. Sometimes they have uh, stories of hardship, uh, difficult times that people are going through and they're trying to raise funds. In that inst- instance, I assume you just need substantiation. The facts that you're making are accurate, but otherwise you're just telling the story of facts of an individual that, that is going through a difficult time and they're trying to raise raise income for that individual. 
assuming that it's true and assuming that the money, because now you're sort of, you're, you're telling the consumer your money is going to go to help this individual. Um, that has to be true. It can't just be, well, our organization helps people and you give us the money. If, if you're tying that story to your request for this person's contribution, the implication is I, I'm, my money's going to go to help this individual. So you, you do, those are called test, you know, sort of testimonials, meaning, you know, real life stories. They are also subject to regulation. You can't make them up. They have to be truthful. Um, and, and that also is a, is a big focus, uh, particularly of the federal trade commission right now, both, in, in all contexts, in nonprofit as well as on the commercial side. And the vast majority of the money has to go to the individual that they, they are publicizing, soliciting for. Right. I mean, if you, if you make it sound like the money you're giving is earmarked for a purpose, then you genuinely have to earmark it for that purpose. Now, now a, a lot of the solicitations that I've seen have... Uh, guarantees or, or they, they promote that the individuals who are donating will get blessings from well-known rabbis, very well-known rabbis. Is there proof if the FTC came in and says, uh, we'd like proof of those rabbis' involvement that they uh, they really are giving these blessings, would there have to be substantiation for something like that as well? Absolutely. I mean, you might think, oh, that, you know, it, it's just a euphemism or it's not. The FTC... The FTC would view those promises as a, 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 a claim like any other claim, and they would want to know who those rabbis are, and they would want to know that, in fact, those rabbis are giving the blessing. Not that, oh, the rabbi made a general blessing for everybody who responds to the solicitation, because what you're telling the, con the consumer is, you give this money, uh, there's going to be a blessing said for you, not for the general population. So, so the rabbi would have to be informed about the marketing campaign, the specifics of who's responding and who he's giving blessings to. And by the way, if the rabbi allows their name to be used and they're not really doing what the solicitation says they're going to do, they could be held liable also. We saw that again just using the astrology cases as a as an example, where there were astrologers, well-known astrologers that allowed their names to be used in the mailings. And it would say things like, I saw a vision of you, oh, you know, getting a lot of money, or um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at your profile personally, and tell you exactly when you're going to when is going to be the right time for you to invest money or whatever, very personalized messages. And those, and those astrologers basically licensed their name for money. They never saw the solicitations. They, of course, they weren't doing what the mailings said they were going to do. And they were subject to enforcement actions as well. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, uh, last question for you. One of these solicitations I saw, uh, I personally thought it went too far. They, they were advertising that if you pay a specific amount of money, I think it was $970 or something like that, $980, uh, 
that you'll even get a contract. The implication was you're going to get a contract. They send you a written contract, apparently, with, with the rabbi, and uh, that there was a limited number of contracts available. They're obviously trying to pressure people into uh, paying before they run out. So uh, if the FTC would investigate something like that, would they have to prove that there was a limited number? They actually turn down certain people. I, I can imagine that as many people as want to donate, they're just going to Xerox more of these contracts. So Correct. Yeah, that's actually, um, I'm glad you brought that up because there is, there is a new um, theory coming into play in false advertising. It's something called dark patterns. Um, it was, it, and it was coined um, by uh, a marketing behaviorist in, in, in London, but the FTC has started to go down this path. And dark patterns are, quite honestly, a lot of them are things that marketers tend to think of as, oh, this is just standard direct marketing. Everybody does this in the direct marketing field. And so it's things like, you know, there's there's only a limited number of these or everyone else in your community is doing this, you know, things that are designed to put some pressure on the, on the, on the consumer to respond. And the FTC has now coined these terms dark patterns, um, which they also consider to be misleading and deceptive. So you're right. If, if, if that were to be in a mailing, the FTC would want to know, well, how many of these were there? And was there anybody that asked for this that like it was, you know, sorry, you know, we're, we're, we're out of the supply. And if the answer is no, that's going to be considered false on its face. Right. So uh, just one last question, Mrs. Goldstein, we have, uh, we have marketers, we have nonprofits sending out marketing materials. What's a good process for them to make sure that they are going to be Here I am again, Mrs. Goldstein. Okay, last question. Uh, so, M Mrs. Goldstein, we have a mar marketers, we have advertisers, we have nonprofits. They're sending out marketing materials. What, what is a, a wise process for them to make sure that they are on good footing before sending out their advertising materials? Do they have a FTC attorney? Do they have an in-house individual has, who has expertise in these areas review everything, all the copy before it's sent out? What's what's a good procedure for them to go through? It, it really is a good procedure to have, have whether it, it's someone they retain, you know, within the company or outside counsel, someone that is really familiar with what the advertising laws and regulations are. And one of the reasons it's important to have someone that has expertise is in many of the advertising cases aren't just about the literal statements in the ad. It's about the overall, what, what's called the overall net impression is the overall net impression of the ad misleading. And that's a much more nuanced analysis that really requires um, the expertise of people who know how the regulators tend to view advertising messages. So it's a, it's a good idea to have your copy reviewed by someone with that expertise. And what you mean by net impression is that even if you're looking at the strict text, the text may be okay, but if a normal consumer, a reasonable consumer would read that, their impression would be 
otherwise, that they're being promised something or it's a little bit over the top. We're not going to look at the strict text about it. It's really what the impression of, of, of a viewer, of somebody who's being solicited, it would be in their eyes well, how we're judging this? Correct. And, and what makes that so, so difficult from a, from a marketing standpoint is the FTC and the other regulators, they can determine the net impression on their own. So even if you disagree or you didn't intend to convey the message that they think is being conveyed, it doesn't matter. If they think there's a misleading net impression, uh, unless you go to litigation and can convince a court otherwise, their opinion is what counts. And that's why the expertise is so important. Mrs. Goldstein, I want to thank you for all the insights. I, I hope uh, the listeners who are familiar with those who are advertising and uh, being a little bit aggressive, if we could spread the word that we should uh, indeed be very careful and vigilant in this area. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and, and, and thank you for bringing this message to your audience because it's an important one. Joining us now is Moshe Kaller. Moshe is the founder and CEO of the Markal Group, which is an innovative real estate development company. He's involved in various tzedakahs, most significantly raising $8 million annually with the Iuna Parsha to supply the needs of Aniye Eretz Yisrael. Moshe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor to be back. Moshe, our topic, different from last time, our topic now is about the marketing claims of certain uh, charitable organizations. And I I thought it would be helpful to get you onto the show and discuss, I know we mentioned last time we spoke, I don't know how long ago it was, about a tzedakah that you are involved in. And it's not a herd of tzedakah. Apparently, you're not doing very much marketing and you're raising significant funds for the Aniya Yeriti So I wanted to get your take on how you go about raising funds, what it's for, and maybe we can use you as an example for a charity that indeed is successful, hopefully successful in raising funds and getting the funds to proper uses without having to engage in certain marketing ploys and uh, languages. So why don't we start out? Who do you raise funds for in Israel? And maybe even before that, how did you get started? Okay, so first, uh, thanks again for having me back. And, you know, I just want to mention that the last podcast that I did, you know, received, you know, tremendous, tremendous feedback, all positive. And that doesn't mean that behind the scenes that there was some controversy, but Baruch Hashem, I felt it was a tremendous Kiddush Hashem, and I heard that. So first of all, thank you for allowing me to get to speak again. The nicest thing that happened uh, about the last podcast was that the morning after it came out, I got a text from somebody who I barely knew, and he said, you know, I heard your podcast, and you mentioned your tzedakah, and I want to help you, and I want to give $10,000 to your tzedakah. Who do I send it to? So that was the first beautiful thing that happened, and I said to myself, wow, if I can just go out there in public and have this platform to talk about what we do, if I can inspire others to give, it would be beautiful. So let me give you the background of how this all happened. So about 15 years ago, a friend of mine by the name of Shimmy Bertram called me up and he said, Moshe, I want to introduce you to somebody. And I know when he says he wants to introduce me to somebody, I know it means that I'm going to write a tzedakah check. So I said, Shami, you know, I have a lot of friends already. I really, you know, right now I'm not looking for a new friend, but I said, Moshe, this, this is different. You'll see. I couldn't say no to him. And uh, within a week, 
a person by the name of Rav Hillel Rotman, who happens to be a Rosh Chabur in the mirror, walks into my house with a bunch of little inaparshas. If you don't know what it is, it's a, like a pocket-sized thing that they put out on the parsha every four weeks. He walked in with a huge smile into my dining room and about 25 different colored inaparshas. And I'm like, I look at Shimmy and I said, Shimmy, uh, this is the friend? This is what you want, who you want me to meet? And he had the most beautiful, engaging smile. And I couldn't say, don't put it down. I said, okay, well, tell me a little bit about it. And let's just, let's just say that that meeting, you know, really changed so many different things in my life. But most importantly, this is how the tzedakah began. So what happened was, is that this Enoch Parsha was for the sole purpose, the G'daylam at the time wanted that Hamidah Chachamim, who were learning, you know, all day, were not learning the Parsha of the week, but Ian. They would learn, they would be Mavasedra, but they weren't really getting involved in it. So from Ramichal Yudalefkowitz, Ramnusen Zee Finkel, Ramchan Kanievsky, Baronlade, they all said that this is a beautiful project, that they would put out questions, and through those questions, people would be Ma'ayin, it would be, you know, deep uh, thought questions, and, you know, people would, and how, how would they get people to do it? They would give out a small prize at the end of the month. You write back a, a response to it. And it's simple. It's a lottery. It's a girl that whoever wins would get a thousand shekels, a set of mishnayis. And for years, this went on. It was beautiful. And I said, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I'm going to sponsor one of those, uh, you know, one of those Zina Parshas. And I became friendly with them. And I, through that, I became very close friends to Rabbi Rothman. I started learning with him because I, I go to the mirror, and obviously he's a huge Tamil Chacham. And the way he could, you know, repay me back for our friendship which is the biggest, uh, you know, payment I can get is to sit and learn with him. So I w- he would tell his chabur, you know, when he comes, I can't sit with you. And they don't, they know that they, they come, they look, they say, Shalom Aleichem, and they don't bother us. And I was able to learn two, three Siddharm. A few years after this started, you know, the Matzah of Neret Shol started getting really bad. I don't remember, it was eight years ago, nine years ago. And, you know, the people that were writing tshuvas started, all of a sudden we started getting many, many more tshuvas. We're talking about thousands and thousands of, of responses. I mean, that we had to rent warehouses to store these, these responses. And people started calling Yaakov Hildesheimer, who was doing this together with Hilda Rothman, the Ina Parsha thing, and, and asking if, you know, women, the, the wives of, of Kohl Yungalite would say, you know, my husband wrote a tshuva with 30 pages and he didn't get anything. And we had to explain to them that we don't, it's not a tzedakah organization, it's simply a girl, we don't raise money, we don't have money. But of course, Hashem has his ways, and from the Yenai Parasha Torah organization, let's call it, it became a Tzedakah organization. And, you know, how did that happen? I was sitting with Hill, and he started crying to me. He said, you know, I have a th- literally a thousand names that have been calling, because once one person I saw here is that there's money from an organization or from people, you know, the, the deluge begins. And they, they started getting phone calls, people crying that they couldn't make Yontif. And at the time that I was in the mirror, learning... He said to me, Hill, I want you to know that this is right now, that day that I happened to have been there. He said, this is the day that the government, I think it was Lapid, whoever was in charge, and was cutting, you know, 50, 60 percent of all the subsidies to front people. And it was a pachat, you know, people were living off it. And I said to him, I said, I can't believe it's happening to them. I'm sitting here, the space mattress is full. There's not a person that's talking about this. I said, I know if I was laying off my company or cutting their payroll in half, I, you could be sure there would be a lot of noise and I, it, it made such a tremendous impact. I mean, that, that's the way people over there, they live with Amuna and they were sitting and learning. So I said to myself, I said, I want to do something because what I had seen, you know, and this has really shook me to, to my core was I was walking with Hill one night after night, say that. And if you know, the mirror yeshiva is located next to the Chama Bakery down the block. And I think it was like 12 o'clock at night, and I want, me and Hill were talking, and I saw a boy, maybe eight, nine years old, 
you know, a firm boy, a Mesha arm boy, someone from around the neighborhood. And his father was, was pointing to the garbage by the, you know, where the bakery throws away the stuff that I guess is left over. And I saw the boy picking up like leftover rolls there. And, you know, even talking about it today gets me so emotional. And me and Hill saw this and we both started to cry to see, you know, I won't say the kid, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to exaggerate that he climbed into the dumpster, but to see a from kid go through the garbage looking for a roll with his father telling him to take it is the most heartbreaking thing I've seen. You see homeless people in different parts of the world do that. But when you see your own children doing that, it's very painful. And I said to myself that I have to do something about this. So, you know, many times we say things that we have to do and then we forget about it. But that left an indelible, you know, mark in my head. And I never, until this day, I still see that picture and I say it over, you know. I don't like saying it over because the idea that Kali Israel has a situation like that is not something that I want to talk about, but it has to be spoken about. And that, and anyone who thinks that that doesn't go on today is is badly mistaken. So I told Hill, I said, we're going to do something. I had $50,000. It was before it was before Hanukkah, I believe, whenever it was. And I said, I want to give it to, to this list. Give me a list of the thousand people and let's figure out how much we can give. It's a small thing, but let's, I want to do it. So we went to our Rebbe, Ravash Ariely. He, he became my Rebbe because I started going to the mirror. So I started going to his share. And he would always tell me that, you know, people are struggling. And he would never tell me what I should do. But I said, you know what, let's go to Ravash and ask him how to disperse it. What should we do? Does he think that we should give less people, more people, more money? So we went to Ravash. I was sitting there with Hill. And, you know, uh, he says to me, Ravash, I said, you know, Baruch Hashem, we're going to give out money. And I thought that he would be so happy. And he smiles. And, and, he, and then I, he looks sad. And I said, Rabbi, you know, it's a good thing, right? He goes, yes, it's such a good thing. And he said, it turned out it would be only 500 shekels, which is a minimal amount of money. And, and he says to me, he says, you know, Chas Shalom, I would never put pressure on you. But if you can, if there's a way that it could be a thousand shekels, and I'll never forget this, Ravash Arieli, the Malach, he gets up from his chair and he starts like uh, showing me you know, like a, like he's pushing a shopping cart. He says, he goes, the, the, the husband and the wife, you give a thousand shekels, McKen, Arangan, you go into a supermarket and he starts showing how, and the man could put a piece of chicken and the wife could put croutons and they could buy ice cream. And his eyes are lighting up and he says, you can make such shalom bias and such simcha in the house. And I'm watching Ravashi say this and he says, but chas shalom, this is not, I don't mean for you to, to have to give more money, but I'm sitting there saying to myself, okay. And I made a cheshman that it would be about, Sixty, seventy thousand dollars more than than you know to give the, that amount of money. So, so let me guess. You called Shimmy Bertram and said, "Shimmy, I have a friend <laughs> to introduce you to." It's a, it was my my good friend Shimmy Bertram knows exactly when to send people and when not. But uh, he's actually still a very good partner with us. But no, so I said to myself, I said, "The rush is asking. I have to do it." So I said, "Blina, I'm doing it." And at that time, I didn't have the money lined up. I knew uh, that I would have to figure out something. And I said, I'm doing it. You know, this happened on a Thursday. By Monday, I come back to my office. I was involved in a real estate deal before I left Eric Yisrael. And I told the person that worked for me, I said, listen, this particular deal, this guy was supposed to buy it. But if he doesn't buy it, you could sell it to someone else. And you have to call me and ask me again if it's okay. Just by this Friday, you can just, if the guy who said he was going to do it doesn't come up with the money, you can sell it to someone else. Okay, I come back Monday and said, by the way, whatever happened, that guy paid off. He goes, no, someone else that called me a few times before came and he called me. I said, if you can fund it on Friday, you, you can have the deal. I said, really, that's funny. I said, how much money do we get for it? He says, $100,000. I said to myself, wow, that's, that's, 
interesting because I was a 50% partner in the deal and I hopped right away. I said, wow, $50,000 more is exactly what I told Rav Russia I was going to give. So, okay, it's an interesting story, right? But the beautiful part of the story was is that I had to call Rav Russia to tell him the story, you know, that we were involved in the conversation and this happened, that happened. I waited until Monday, 11 o'clock to his time. I call him up. I said, Rabbi, you're not going to believe it. And I'm telling him the story. And I'm not, he's there's like his response. He was muted. He, 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 there was no like excitement. I said, Rabbi, he says, Moshe, you thought for a second that you're not going to get the money back? It's halacha psukin shulchan aruch. <laughs> and I was like, okay, good nacht. I said, good night, Rabbi. Like, <laughs> and I, I, that phone call, you know, taught me what a munipshut is. That to him, the story was, was okay. It was a nice story. Not a nice story. That He doesn't need stories. It's halacha that you get your money back. So from there, it became into what it is today. You know, what ended up happening was I went back to my friends and I started raising money. And Baruch Hashem, you know, I'm not going to say it was easy. And, you know, there are people out there that know that it's a lot easier to give than it is to ask others to give. And that's why the schar is bigger, because it's, it's hard, you know. And anyone who thinks that if you, you know, are about tzedakah or if you give, therefore it's easier because people say, oh, he gives. It's, I think, on the contrary, it's, it's actually more difficult. And I can tell you that, I, you know, there are people that I've seen, you know, when I just mentioned some names because they, they deserve to be mentioned, that they inspired me to do this, is that you have a guy like Ralph Hertzka, who's a very successful Batsadaka. And I don't know the extent of what he gives, but he's a huge giver. And he goes around and he collects money. And he came to me for the mirror and he asked me for money. And I said, Ralph, that's, you know, I got to tell you, I started raising money. It's very hard. I have such respect for you that you do this. You know, you'll do it for $10,000. And he says, you know, it's a lot easier to give. And this is, you know, my job is to ask. And I think uh, Rashmal Burmau may be inspired him to do that. I'm not sure that uh, who did it, but a guy like Reuven Wolf, you know, these are people that I do business with that give huge tzedakahs and they call other people and ask them. I, I, I was sitting in, in Aaron Wolfson's office one day, you know, we were raising money for, for a person that ran into financial trouble, not an organization, no one knew about it. And I was sitting there with Ben Phillips and Aaron Wolfson, Mish Wolfson, two, three other people. And they were making phone calls to, to strangers. We had a list of people that they knew, you know, about like tzedakah, I guess they called them and, and I'm sitting there watching him pick up the phone and saying, hi, it's Aaron Wilson. And you, you like, and I'm sitting there and I'm like saying to myself, there's no, nowhere in the world, there's no way in the world that you can have people that are that successful, like give so much money that could pick up a phone and call people unless they're tzaddikim. And it inspired me. And that's why I, I'm able to ask people. And it's not easy. There are times that people ignore me. There are times that people make me feel like, okay, what do you want now? But I always say, you know, if I embarrass myself for you, this should be my biggest embarrassment. So, so, this, yeah. so is, is this how you add? There's no advertising then. It's not like you're going on this website or going on this uh, radio channel and saying, uh, we'll give you a bracha nachas, et cetera. This is grassroots calls, people you know, networking. We have a need in Eretz Israel, and that's how you're raising the funds. Exactly, exactly that. We have a WhatsApp chat, and it's funny because obviously Hill and Yaakov, they don't have WhatsApp, so uh, when they come in to collect, Yaakov has WhatsApp, uh, you know, and I have a group of friends that, uh, you know, when, when I uh, started introducing people to, to this organization, I ended up uh, with a group of friends, five, six friends that, uh, you know, became part of this WhatsApp chat. You know, there's, I just want to mention their names because they work day and night together with me. And there's Abby Muller, there's Owen Betzal Klein, Joseph Goldberg, Mati Steg, Yankee Frank, and Yankee Miller. We have a WhatsApp chat that I, if I would, 
you know, I would tell you that this is as chashav as a safer. The conversations that have gone on, this is talking about years. There were times that we couldn't raise money. It was very, very difficult. And you would see the WhatsApp chat, who can we call, try them again, just when we each other. And this is the grassroots for me coming back and telling these guys, look, you have to meet uh, Yaakov and Hill. I told Batsal Klein, you know, this is somebody you want to help. And from there, he Yankee Frank, and then the next person, the next person. And that is what it is, a grassroots program. And what I've seen is that, you know, there was a time that I was in a position to give much more, and eventually one day I will be able to, but I, I realized, and I said to myself, you know, my job right now is not to get, you know, not to stretch myself in a way that I can't afford to give, but really it means that I have an opportunity to raise more money. And, you know, I would talk to people and tell them, I want you to know that this is a, a tzedakah that you're feeding people. So this organization, I want you to realize is no one who's giving knows the people that are getting. We have 11,000 families today, I mentioned for this Pesach, which we have to raise $5 million for. As we sit here, a few weeks, two weeks before Pesach, we're up to $3,650,000. And I have no doubt that with Hashem's help, we're going to get there. Because when we needed to raise $2 million, we got to $2 million. And we don't know the people. So we tell people that we ask money for, I want you to understand, we're not working for an organization. There's, there's no one who knows even who we are. No one knows the people who are getting don't know my name. They don't know anyone's name because I don't want them to know my name. There's no purpose. There's a few people that know. But right. they don't so, know. Walk, walk us through. We're raising funds in, in the States and elsewhere, and it's going to recipients in Eretz So who decides on the recipients and what's the criteria? Okay, so the, the funds are, 90% of our funds are raised from, from people living in the United States. There's a small amount that comes from Eretz Yisrael. All the funds are dedicated to people living throughout the entire Eretz Yisrael from Tzvas to, to the south. The criteria is that for the most part, we wanted people to write tshuvas, because remember the responses, because we wanted them to earn it as, you know, rather than taking tzedak, which a lot of people, no matter how poor they are, do not want charity. So it was B'derach Kovid, Rav said, you know, the biggest, you know, tzedak, the nicest thing is that a person earns it, he has to write a tshuva. But it became so big, it was impossible to tell people who, you know, needed money, okay, but write us a tshuva. But I would say that 75% of the people on the list were people who were writing us tshuvas. And we have millions of tshuvas. I mean, we have a warehouse full of answers on the parashah because we always wanted the Rosh Kala will tell the guy, write a tshuva and you'll get on that list. So the criteria really is, at this point, is that we tell the, the, the at this point in Eretz everybody knows in a parasha that they give out money for you. We do this twice a year for Sukkot and Pesach. And essentially, so, yeah, yeah. Just to interrupt, so even if people don't get their donations in, hopefully we'll, we'll give a, a location for people. Even if you don't get your do- donations in by Pesach, keep yes, them Yes, yes. Okay, keep fine. Unfortunately, the need continues. And, and besides that, I'm glad you raised that because what we've done through this is that We've taken, you know, families that we knew were, were so poor and we set up, you know, monthly donations to them, like a thing that people would actually donate. And we have a long list of people that get money every single month that, that, that were not involved in, in raising. They, they've met them. And that's the nicest thing is that people have met other people and they've taken families under their names and, and it continues. And we've helped people print Svarim and make chasinas. But the main, the main tzedakah is really Sukkot and Pesach. And we, we actually tried for sure as we raised a half a million dollars because the people were desperate. But the criteria is very simple. The, the Rosh Kail or the person who calls up Yaakov Hildesheimer, he is the most Masidic person in the world. And we use uh, Rebbets and Elephants, uh, Tzedako. She's a, an accounting firm. She orders our books. But what we have that I, I can't say others have is a book with every single person's name, 
You're talking about 11,000 families, their name, their phone number, their address, what color they live in. And what we do is, right before Yantif, they get a phone call from the organization that says, you can now call the supermarkets. We have two, three different chains throughout our Israel. So the money is specific for food. And what they can do, go into the store and they can use that money to buy. And we get like a 5% discount from the store. So when they walk in there, no one knows that it's charity. It's a simple account that they get. And Yaakov Elisheimer goes through every single name. And we have the book that shows every single person's name. You can call them up and ask them, do you get 2,000 shekels, 1,500 shekels, depending on the size of the family. And that is how we do it. And I'll tell you what's interesting is that we went to show Rav Usher the book last time because we went to show him what we accomplished. And he picked it up and he put it down. He says, you know, it's such a holy tzedakah. I'd rather not know the names. I don't have to know the names. It's a bigger tzedakah when you don't know who's getting it. <laughs> and the people that give do not know the people that get and vice versa. All they know is our names to daven for us. And so what percent of donations are actually received? So we send out donations on this side and it's received by Aniyah Eretz Yisrael. 95%, 80%. Uh, so I would say that except, so from the money that we raised, which last year uh, was circus, we raised about 4.2 million. I think this year, basically we have to raise 5 million because, you know, the list unfortunately continues to grow as the needs do. I want to say from all that money, every single penny goes to Aniam. The only expense we have is a minimal accounting expense that we have to pay an administrative person that just, you know, helps us with the books and travel expenses for Yaakov and Hill that come into or come from our Israel to raise money. They sleep by us. There's no hotels. There's no, no extravagance, nothing. And it's fair to say that 95% for sure goes to the Eretz Israel because we make a point to try to help them financially so they don't have to get paid from the tzedakah. Wow, that's that's impressive. So, so Moshe, um, how do people find the charity? You know, do you have a website? Okay. You have so, a- so I, it, it's interesting that I realized that I was going to be doing this podcast and I would have, uh, you know, the ability to t- talk about this. So I fast. So we don't do any advertising because it's really grassroots. Our friends call friends who call friends. And, you know, so we have in org is actually being set up now. So in time for when this gets aired, that they'll be able to make a donation. But uh, how do you spell that? E-U-N-H-A-P-A-R-S-H-A. Dot org. So there's no website. Is there no, a, website. There's no 800 number? There are no telemarketers calling people. There are no no pictures. No pictures of Gadal and putting uh, money in pushkas. You know, no uh, telemarketing. Nothing. Just uh, pure, pure sincerity from the people that go around asking friends to give. And and I can tell you that that's luck that people have had. You know, uh, people. I could. Personally, I know stories of people who gave $5,000 a year ago, two years ago, who've given us $500,000. And I've, you know, there were times that we were so worried that we'd never reach our goals. And we realized that, you know what, our job is to raise money. And, you know, whenever we had a goal, Baruch Hashem, there was someone else that came from nowhere to give us money. And I'll tell you, there was a time that one Pesach, maybe it was three or four years ago, that I ended up going to our show before Pesach because we, for some reason, we could not raise money. We were short, you know, half of the money a week before Pesach. So we went, so whenever we run into a situation like that, we go to our Rebbe, Rav Usher, and say, we need, we need Yitzvillas. And somehow things start working. So he said, I should come down to our show and we're going to daven together. So I went to our show a week, uh, it was literally five, six days before Pesach. And Rav Usher got together 25 Avrechim to Davin, and we said to him for a half hour, and 
He said, Don't, Hashem will help. You just keep, keep doing it. And of course, Hashem helped and we ended up getting it. But I had the opportunity at the time to be in B'nai Barak because I was Zechel because of this. One of the, one of the dividends that, that I, I got from this is that I was able to have a, a cash with Chaim Kanievsky because every time I would go to Eretisol, which would be two, three times a year, we would go. He always knew in our parasha. And he always, you know, welcomed us and I was able to spend time with him and he'd give us brachas. As a matter of fact, as a side note, there was a time that it got so hard for Hill and Yaakov and they, they really never signed up to, to raise money. And they asked Rukhain, they said, look, we want to stay and learn. We, we have Yenai Parsha. We, we did this for, for writing the Torah and not for raising money. And he says, no, Hashem gave you the, the, the schus. You have to continue. So it was really Rukhain's directive that, uh, you know, that we had to continue this. So I ended up by Rukhain a couple of days before. So they said on the way to the airport, we, they had just announced that they were, you know, goes out to call a few days before. It was literally very late because we didn't have the money. And said, come, let's go to the supermarket to meet the person in the supermarket who helps us. Because our supermarkets, when we didn't have the money, would extend credit for a little longer. I want you to meet the guy. So we walk into a supermarket near Chaim's house in Bnei Brak. I walk in there, and there's two Kyle young guys wheeling a wagon over there. And Yaakov says to me, he goes, I think that those guys probably are using you in our parasha. He didn't know who they were. He had a feeling. So he walks over, Shalom Aleichem, and they says something in our parasha, their eyes light up. He says, yeah, yeah, this, this is, yeah, we just got the call. I said to myself, I looked in the wagon, and they're talking about two Kolyungalites, two separate wagons. In the wagon, you'd think that they came to buy, you know, expensive chocolates. They had matzah, they had oil, and they had potatoes. And I said to, I said, Yaakov, I said, ask him that he's buying matzah now. He didn't have, and this is exactly what I found out. Their shopping carts were the basic necessities. So that means four or five days before Pesach, okay, there are people in B'nai Rock, in the supermarkets, that didn't have enough matzah, enough oil, enough potatoes for Yontif. That's who we are helping. But I can tell you, I've been in homes of people in Eretz Yisrael, people that wanted me to come in just to see who they were helping. Their fridges are unplugged during the week because they don't have anything that they need to refrigerate. I've walked into houses that I, I'm, I'm the real estate business. I used to manage the worst buildings in Newark and, you know, in, in I could tell you, I've seen living conditions that were far worse. You know, five, six kids sleeping in a room. You know, the the and and don't don't get me wrong. These people are the happiest people. So we're not talking about downtrodden people. We're talking about people that are hungry, but they would not give up their lives for a second. But to get to be able to have the schus to feed them is is enormous, and that's that's really our goal. The six, seven friends that I do this with, they've all seen it. They've all decided that they wanted to see it because it's very easy. You can go to a hotel in, in Yushalayim and think that everyone is rich in Yushalayim, but people are desperate there. And our job is to really tell people that they need help. And one thing I, I, I'm very careful to do is if a person, the, the, there is a common denominator, you know, and I'm not saying this to judge anybody. And if I haven't called you, it doesn't mean because I think this about you. Maybe you're lucky enough that I haven't thought about you. <laughs> but but if you want, if you know who I am and you want to call me, I'll be happy to take money from you. But one cannot, common denominator that I've seen when it comes to raising money for B'nai Torah, the common denominator is that the giver has to be a Ben Torah. I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. Right, Moshe, very well said. Really appreciated. We do question. Well, though, 
somebody who facilitates others giving tzedakah, it's even greater than the person who gives tzedakah, so to you and your cohort of uh, friends who are helping, and we give you the bracha that you should have tremendous atzlacha in the limited days left before Pesach, and people will continue listening to this throughout Pesach and thereafterwards, so Amir Jusen, they can continue for the shruish draw and the, the shruish fundraising and the sukkahs and going forward, and you should have atzlacha getting that website up in time for when this, <laughs> for when this uh, yeah. podcast starts starts to yeah so yeah. i heard it was for, we we reserved the name i heard it was 40 dollars to get it going so we we're i think it's in the budget i told the guys we got to get it going so it's ianhaparasha.org but if you want to find us you have you know you'll find us and uh thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and you know hopefully we can continue to be you know because really that's what it's all about and i thank you Thank you so much. Moshe, it's just a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, all the best. Joining us now is Rabbi Yair Hoffman. Rabbi Hoffman is a Rav, a Posek, a prolific author who has written numerous, literally numerous articles in Sfarim. Rabbi Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. It's a pleasure to have you. So, Rabbi Hoffman, I recently saw an article that you wrote. It was called Reb Chaim Shlita Answers 10 Shidduch Questions. And that indeed caught my eye because it relates to the topic that we're talking about here today, about the marketing, advertising of tzedakah agencies, uh, hopefully to help people who are in need of a shidduch or what other other salvation is necessary, oh, serious chola and the mishpacha and the family and the like. And and I wanted you to recount this uh, question that you asked, a couple questions that you asked, Rav Chaim, to get the real input on when you have uh, an older single. We'll start with an older single girl, for example, who's, who's looking for a shidduch. So there are some charities, tzedakahs, who advertise that they can help with the tefillah. If you give us a certain amount of money, donate to us, we will have 70 of the Gedolia door daven for you, and you're guaranteed. There's no money back guarantee, unfortunately, but you are guaranteed or close to guarantee to find your shidduch or whatever other Yeshua that you need. And when you asked Rav Chaim the, the question, what skula is there for an older single girl to find a shidduch? Did he say uh, donate a specific amount of money to a certain organization, or did he have some other aid side? Actually, he did not. His emphasis this time, I asked similar questions previously, but his emphasis this last time was that she or he should daven and then daven again. The uh, way I understood it was the Imos and the Chana, for example. HaKadosh Baruch who wanted them to daven in order to develop a strong Kesher with them. In other words, uh, Chana or the Imos could have, you know, just been regular, very, very good Yidden. But the fact that they were withheld children uh, was an impetus for them to even daven ever more and develop that kesher with HaKadosh Baruch Hu that, you know, that Hashem wanted. This is what many of the Mepharshim and the Rashi Yeshiva and the Gedolei HaMusser say is the reason why we're not finding Shaduchim and, the, you know, why we need for children. And that is so that we would develop this relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu through tefillah. He did not mention tzedakah. In previous times, however, I heard a different thing that someone could do in order to, uh, to get a shidduch. Let's say, for example, someone insults you and you don't respond, you don't answer. You're Mavir Almidosov, and Hashem loves such people, 
And that's the time when right away you should daven Takarish Baruch Hu for assistance in a shidduch. That was also from Reb Chaim Kanievsky, but that was years ago. So, so, so uh, far, so far, Rabbi Hoffman, we have two. We have daven and daven again. In other words, it's not just the davening. It's create a relationship with a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and it doesn't sound like that should be an outsourced relationship through hiring others to daven for you, but you yourself should establish that relationship through a regular davening to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And the second Eitzah was Mavir Al-Midosav. Right. So in other words, I mean, we don't want people to insult you, but unfortunately, that's something that happens that is not so rare these days. So if that happens, don't say a word, be mavir al-midosav, and then daven immediately. Uh, that was also from Reb Chaim Kanievsky. The particular Tehillim that one should say are Kuf Chaf Zion and Kuf Chaf Ches. They work especially for Shaduchim, and that's kind of, uh, of davening as well. Particular emphasis uh, should be you know, the Psukim and Lamed Beis, Vav, Samaches, Zion. Also, Yud Gimel and Chaf are general uh, Tehillim for Yeshua's. This is also from Reb Chaim. Reb Shurkin said that establishing a Gamach, where you look at uh, something that's needed, that's very effective, helping a Chassan and Kala, that need assistance to get married is also very effective for this. There's a midah connected midah. Now, I also, this is not from Reb Chaim, this I heard from one of my Rebbeim, Reb David Kriat Zatzal. He was a tremendous gadol. He gave, he was Rabbi Bender's Rebbe also from Shiva Darchei Torah. Uh, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz said about him that he was a gadol hador in Shanghai. So he said the following. He said that if you daven for someone else to receive a shidduch and you're doing it for a genuine reason, not just for if you daven for someone else, you get answered first, right? You know, the Gemara Bavakama, Tzadik Bezimanov. So then that works, but you got to be genuine about it. it you got to truly daven for him and not for the ulterior purpose or her, uh, for the ulterior purpose of because I'm Ispalban Chavero, davening for someone else. Getting a bracha from a tzaddik is also something, you know, Mesil Sisharim says that in Perkutes, and that opens the gates of bracha. There's a Medjish Tanchuma that says to do the Mitzvah Shiloh HaKan. For a man, learning Ksuvis Be'iyan, this whole, comes from... The, the whole thing? The whole Masechta? The whole Masechta. This comes from Rav Prager, the son-in-law of the Mram Shek. Now, I, what about for women? You know, I just saw, by the way, that uh, Rav Fagelstock, that saw from Yeshiva of Long, from Sift of Long Beach, said that, you know, you don't have real dvekis unless you also work things out for women. I was thinking, if you sponsor someone to learn Ksuvis Be'iyun, that might be also a, uh, a mahalach. I'd love to ask uh, a gadol on that also, but I think it's uh, Klar from uh, Rav Fagelstock's uh, Shmuzim. Also, Kedushin, the uh, Rav Mordechai Gross says that uh, if you learn Meseches Kedushin or Ksuvis Be'iyun, and for, uh, for uh, older women also, maybe sponsoring learning Be'iyun, that Mesechta. There's a Medjish that says, this is in Bereshis Rabbah, that Akadosh uh, Baruch Hu opened her eyes. It's on Nun Gimel Yudalad. So everyone, you know, that was by Hagar. So everyone's considered blind until Hashem opens their eyes. The Vart is, she was lacking in Emunah. Uh, the Baba Rebbe says this. So building Emunah is a Mahalach. One thing, you know, it's also Mitzvah Doraisa anyway, 
But let's say you're just traveling on the road and you're not really doing anything. Saying over psukim, the, uh, for example, the pasuk of Hine kel yishuasi eftach velo eschad is a mitzvah. So you get a mitzvah, and it's also a demonstration of emuna. You know, there is also a Rashi in Dvarim. It, it, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Bo urshu. Come and inherit the land. Rashi says, No one is going to give you a fight about it. So what's happening here? I mean, we know we, we had to, you were sure you had all these wars to, to, to gather, to, to, to get going there. So Rashi says that it was because we sent the Miraglim. Uh, had we not sent the Miraglim, it would have been Bo or Shu, just come in and inherit the land. Revelia Lopian says that on Rosh Hashanah during Birkas Kohanim, hopefully it'll happen sooner, but you should uh, stand as close as possible to the Kohanim uh, with your palms facing upward and asking for, for bracha from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Then also, just in general, during Aseris Yimei Tshuva, davening with a lot of kavana and Pesach, Seder night, Rav Aaron Cutler, Zatzal, said, try and be the one to open the door for Elio Anavi. Interesting, uh, one other things, uh, on Motsi Shabbos, if you say the Pismon of Elio Anavi with Kavana, the Ungvar, uh, the Mishnah Lacha says it. Rabbanasha Klein. Rabbanasha, yeah. Saying the Shira, the Shira Sayyam with a lot of Kavana, that, uh, that's brought down as well in Sefer Rifal Hamalach. In Sim Shalom, if you say it with Kavana and keep in mind that uh, whoever's single, he's, he's, you know, doesn't have the Simcha, the Bracha, Torah, and Shalom. So if you have in mind the Shalom when you say Shemon Asra, so that the Nitziv's brother-in-law gave that as a skula. And Kuf Chaf Aleph, I think we mentioned it at the end of Elokai Nitzor, that's Esa Enayel Ha'arim, the Ainiya Voizri, that is also brought down. I did see that from Rebel Yashiv that saying Shira Shirim for forty days straight, but uh, I mean I saw it in a safer. It was you know reliable. You know one of the I think it was in the Mavakshe Torah. Where else to daven if you are in Eretz Yisrael? Davening straight at the Kaisel for a shidduch is uh, is good. There's one that my mother Allah Shalom did. She got it from a, I believe it was a Talmud of the Chafetz Chaim was in Meir Sharim. He told her to go to Tzfas the kever of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, to go around seven times and to daven that in the merit of this Tana, she should find a zivug soon. What happened? As she was coming back, she met my father, whom she had dated before, and he had to leave, and then he asked her, oh, did you get engaged? She said, no, not yet, and within a week, they had gotten engaged. That was uh, interesting. That that Um, seems like a very effective one then. I guess so. Uh, so anyway, that's, uh, oh, I did have one other ha'ara that, uh, is, I just think is fascinating. When we daven Shmon Esra, we say, Mechakel Chaim Bechesed. There's two shotim that I think most people have. One shot is that Mechakel Chaim Bechesed, the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu supports life, is he does it through his Mida of Chesed. A second shot that many of the Sidurim say is, is that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have been Mechal Kelchaim, could be supporting life, how? Through baked ziti, so to speak. But how does he do it? He gives us steak. He gives us uh, fettuccine Alfredo. He gives us uh, penala vodka, not just regular baked ziti. So that's the pshat in Mechal Kelchaim, but he doesn't bechesed. So there's a third pshat. The third pshat 
is from Rabchatzko Levenstein. It's a beautiful, beautiful shot. What is the food, what is the energy that sustains life? How is he Mechal Kachayim? By giving us the ability to do chesed. In other words, that's the food, that's the energy, that's what sustains the world. Now, I was thinking, it's a beautiful, beautiful shot, but I was thinking along Rabchatzko Levenstein's lines, that's all, his, his, his Mahalach in understanding Shimon Esra, let's continue. If you do, so that's chesed, but if you do something that shows incredible rachamim, that can do tchiasamesim. So I was thinking that that might be a, uh, that might be another mahalach. Very insightful. Very insightful. Rabbi Hoffman, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I so when I asked you to join the, sh- the show and give us some school ads, I didn't expect such a, a long list. Um, and uh, th- there's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. And uh, there's a lot that each person can do. And I, I assume that many of those apply not only for somebody looking for a shidduch, but other Yeshuas as well. For other Yeshuas as well, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, very nice speaking to you again. And Hatzlach and Bracha, Chomasecha. Amen. Thank you.